Sure. All right. Well, everybody, it's uh, just a little bit past five, so we're going to kick off the this is about the October 3rd edition of the MMTC meeting, starting with the study session. The study session for today is going to be about um, one of the four pillars, I think it's four, of the Lawrence Strategic Plan, which is unmistakable identity. So we're going to be talking about that with some members of the unmistakable identity team with regards to transportation. And uh, it's going to be a little bit open-ended, but to start, we're going to go around and do introductions. It's not really a formal roll call, but it would probably be good for everybody to know who's who and which which team are you on, right? So um, I'll just get started here. Nick Kuzmiak, current chair of the Multimodal Transportation Commission. I've been on for three-ish years, and um, that's it for now. So Dustin, let's go your way. Dustin Smith, uh, engineer with Municipal Services and Operations. Stephen Mason, uh, Parks and Recreation, part of the Unmistakable Identity team. Dave Cronin, City Engineer, um, staff liaison for the uh, MMTC. Laura Bennett's uh, commissioner since June. Jake Baldwin, Engineer with MSO. Pat Collette, uh, commissioner with uh, MMTC. So this is close to the end of my second year. Aaron Payton, uh, Commissioner MMTC. Uh, this is close to the end of my sixth year. Uh, Charlie Bryan, <clears throat> MMTC, and probably six years too. Althea Schnocki, Commissioner MMTC, and this is um, eight months in, I think. Will Sharp, Commissioner with MMTC since June of this year. Damon Baltuska with MMTC for a year now. All right, well, there doesn't appear to be any prepared agenda items, so I think it would probably be good for somebody, possibly Derek, of the Unmistakable Identity team to kind of lead us off and tell us you know, what you guys are working on. You want a bad microphone? Sure. All right, thanks. Thank you for the invite. And you got quite a few team members here, and I'm not quite sure who's all online. Uh, I see Jessica Moringer and Kim Onspach, who's uh, also a member of Mistakeful Identity. I don't see Mark Hecker. I thought he'd be on too tonight. Roger Steinbrock is on. Yep. Just uh, unmuted. So I appreciate the invite and. Uh, I've been talking to Dave Cronin and multimodal and how can we expand some ways of our unmistakable identity and uh, take advantage of how we get around Lawrence that promotes um, natural energy, whether it be bicycling, walking, uh, other means, and still uh, represents our, our culture and uh, what we see as unmistakably Lawrence and why we live in this community. So thank you for the invite. So I guess it would probably be helpful for those of us who weren't directly involved in the strategic planning process to know um, if you can maybe give us a quick recap of what the general teams are, uh, I guess how you see your role with transportation in, in, in terms of, do you want MMTC to come up with project ideas? Do you want us to compare to other 
communities? Like, where do we fit in? How do we help you achieve your, your directive? What I see is a, a lot of collaboration. There's um, five outcome areas and six commitment teams. So um, we blend quite frequently with strong welcoming neighborhoods, safe and secure, prosperity and economic development. Um, those areas we, we kind of cross boundaries with in the neighborhood associations. Um, we've been working quite a bit. The collaboration of bringing ideas and how do we get the synergy? So how do I see our role as unmistakable identity is um, there's ideas that come forward in the community that we, the city just can't be the brainchild of everything. And it is community engagement, what the community wants to see. So what we like to see is community members come forward and our collaborators on our team are uh, downtown Lawrence Inc. Um, unmistakably Lawrence, Explore Lawrence, um, Lawrence Arts Center, Theater Lawrence, Watkins Museum, uh, sister cities, uh, library. So uh, we have a lot of things going on in different areas and it's how do we pull them together? So some of the connecting points may be, hey, there's, you know, this last weekend, uh, we had Revit Up Hot Rod Show. At the same time, uh, we had the Sustainability Network, Mike Allman um, was piggybacking on that. How do we get the sustainable energy of electric vehicles, cars, the bus, bicycles, how do we incorporate that? And so how do we get a synergy of the community and also bring more people into the community to go, hey, this is something that's really unique to Lawrence. Um, I apologize for not being as sharp as I should. I had about four hours of sleep last night, just getting back from vacation. <laughs> so I was enjoying and um, being in Hawaii, I was looking at how they get around. How do they deal with their farmer's markets? How do they do this in their city? And it's unique to see an island perspective of how they get around their city and a lot more walkers than I see bikers. Now, some of that is private roads and other things. Um, at the same time, I did see, you know, one wheeled cycles, um, very few, but I saw a few. So it's unique to see different environments and how we relate to that. So Northwest Arkansas has a lot of bicycling. We like what we saw when we went down there uh, in the spring. Uh, they're seen as a biking community. I see what I saw down there was um, their multimodal paths, multi-use paths actually connected to, I'm gonna use it to go somewhere with a purpose versus just recreation. And so if you, listen to sustainability network they're about let's do this to get from point a to b i as a recreational use it seeing as i love the ambiance of biking down the haskell section of the lawrence loop trail i have a different perspective but it's trying to meet everybody's needs and then take expand what we have add to it and enhance what our community represents so the cod river commons idea and we looked at the synergy there we're trying to solve getting from the amtrak station to constant park with the trail <clears throat> so we had an engineering study for that and then we also had the uh, proposal for a river route so can we combine our efforts into one engineering study and try to come up with a solution that looks at both land and water and what is the best solution and maximize our dollars for the most efficient way so 
Um, so what would I like to see out of, uh, out of the task force and working groups? I would like to see ideas that we can take forward or, hey, we hadn't thought of that, or, hey, the community would like to see this or that, and how can we bring those to reality and you know, what are we missing? Hmm. And Dave, what, what's your perspective? You're on the multimodal and Jessica, uh, Mordinger, if you have um, thoughts, I'd love to hear what you have to say. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of uh, opportunities for us to continue to build our infrastructure and multimodal connectivity. And that's what we've been working on since since I've been here and making a lot of progress, making a lot of progress on the Lawrence Loop. I think that's a really uh, uh, something that's a very good visual example of of uh, of of Lawrence's identity in the Lawrence Loop. And so I think that's you know one way on at least on the on the engineering team that we've been pursuing grants and trying to you know complete that loop and then um obviously all the work that we talk about with this group on different projects and policies and working on crossing policy for for the city um trying to make improvements to help promote more um multi multimodal activity and i know with adam adam's on the line and um adam's working you know, with transit and, and uh, um, the transfer facility, their new um, uh, facility they're working on for, for Bob Billings is going to be a huge deal for, for the city. And so, yeah, there's a lot of work going on in transportation. So, um, but if you drill down into a little bit more um, on the mistake data, you get down the um, key performance <clears throat> indicators. KPIs, I think I got that right. But the ones that it, it touches are, you know, um, do I feel welcome in my community? Um, are we impacting in a positive way the marginalized communities, whether economically challenged or some of the other groups? I think those are some of the key ones that we can look at under the unmistakable identity KPIs um, that we directly touch with the parts of the community that are challenged with transportation. They don't have the ability to afford a car. They're using our mass transit and they're doing some other things or they're biking, they're walking. So. Um, would it be possible to maybe bring up a, a screenshot of the unmistakable identity page under the strategic plan? Just so we can follow along. I don't know if computer, honestly, but. <clears throat> and Kurt, are you able to hear me from here? Am I close enough to microphone? Gotcha. Sweet, all right. Um, so what I was thinking to maybe kind of get the get the ideas flowing and and just um, get more in line with the whole idea of unmistakable identity. I was curious to hear, um, you know, from all of you, if we could go go around and if you can think of an idea or an example of something that is both transportation transportation related and an unmistakable identity portion of a place. It could be Lawrence. It could be a place you've been to or even heard about. Um, for example, you already mentioned Northwest Arkansas, right? Like they're now kind of positioning themselves as the mountain biking capital of America or something like that, which, you know, 10 years ago would have been like, Arkansas, what? But apparently <laughs> it's kind of a thing now. All of a sudden, it may as well be the North Shore outside of Bentonville. So it's a very different world. And that was half marketing and half actual infrastructure. Um, you know, for example, there's a city in Spain that I think 10 years ago decided to go car free in a very large part of its downtown. And it, it still will occasionally make transportation headlines around the world, like, look what this city did, and it worked. Um, 
in a storefronts hated it, but now they love it. So that's kind of a thing that sets that city apart from any other city in Spain. Because um, almost everywhere, you can still drive a car, you just don't really want to. But they actually prohibited cars in a, a large part of their historic center. So, you know, I think of things like that that are kind of bold statements, honestly, and are almost interesting enough to collect, um, so I guess, coalesce the collective consciousness of a city and be like, that is something cool, and I want to see that happen. So like the Riverfront Center, for example, right? Something that you know, you see a rendering of and say, man, I'd love to ride in a little circle, you know, and then go across the river on my bike. That's cool. Um, so I think I'm, I might go this way first because I think, David, you probably have some stuff in mind anyway, but, or if you don't, I can skip by you, but I'm just kind of curious to see what you all think. And perhaps in the course of doing so, we can start to generate some of these ideas from this more transportation-focused group to the people who are going to hear it, right? So just uh, let's see which direction should I go. And staff, do you want to be involved in this, or do you want us to pass you by? Where'd Dave go? He's oh, there. Yeah, and I can. I mean, I can. Yeah. Oh, we the KPIs. Yeah. Let me shoot. Shoot those. I think one thing that just came to mind was well, I just visited Paris, and yeah, they had a lot of sort of wider boulevards. You know, almost like Kansas City. Boulevards with a large kind of median in between, but they actually began to, uh, you know, program, incorporate bike lanes, you know, small city parks, parklets, you know, in that green plane, that sand and metal. So that was really cool. Almost like a linear park or something, yeah, right? It's, it's mm. kind of like the loop, but it's along the road, so it's more transportation oriented than that plane. Yeah. And you're showing me it goes like directly through the center of some pretty dense areas. It's not like out on the fringe, right? Like it's right there. Mm -hmm. So, hmm. do you think it's something that a lot of Parisians got behind, or was it controversial? Or now that it's there, they're cool with it? Or has it been there for hundreds of years? Nobody remembers. I'm not sure how new it is, but it's packed, packed full of bikes. <laughs> yeah, lost traffic, bike traffic. Interesting. Cool. All right. So I've, I've shared the uh, sharing my screen with um, the performance indicators here. So the first one is the percent of residents who are satisfied or very satisfied with the parks and recreation system. Um, and the target there is greater than or equal to 84%. And I think that was the 2020 data. I think slightly lower than that maybe. So some of these, I believe we already had metrics on and then some were newer questions to the EEC. So we don't have the, the first official round yet. So those are going to be the ones that are marked as uh, still under development. And then I think another one that's related to transportation here would be number of people have visited or utilized the city park or trail, city rec center, recreation program, Theater Lawrence Watkins Museum. Lawrence Arts Center, Spore Lawrence, or Public Library. So a lot there. Um, that um, that's the 2020 number. 1.4 million number of people who've visited or utilized those mm. different places or things. So those are those are a couple that are probably directly related to transportation. Yeah. How do you quantify trail usage? Because the other ones, you know, you can probably count people, right? But how do you do trails? And that's a tough one. And that's one where we've talked with Explore Lawrence. Uh, 
Kim could explain it better. Uh, potentially, they have a tracking system called Datafy. Oh, there's okay. also a way to track cell phone data that you could track usage. And then I know Multiple Mobile has done, and Dustin, I think you did some trail counts on the loop. <laughs> That's a that is a difficult metric. Yeah. Okay. So we continue going around the circle. Sure. They will. So, getting the microphone. I immediately thought of as far as cities with um, unique transportation solutions, Valpo in Chile, Valparaiso with mm -hmm. their funicular system, you know, steep hills. And I just, you know, I doubt Lawrence's hills are as steep as those, but <laughs> they, I think, do pose a a barrier to some people for transportation, especially getting up to campus for the students and then getting back down to downtown and whatnot. So I have, you know, a wild idea about how cool it would be if you could take a um, some type of tram from campus to South Park or something like that. Um, that's cool. Yeah, I one of the things that I really enjoy about Lawrence and that I'm still discovering even after 20 odd years is all the city parks. Like there's so many neighborhood parks and they're still getting connected, especially with the loop. And so every day I'm out running or bicycling, it's a new adventure. Like, oh, I didn't know this existed. It's really nice. All right, I have quite a list here. Like, maybe. Um, maybe we can come back around. Well, I think something this is I can go through pretty quickly. The things that I, I think are transportation related that are already happening um, that we should um, continue to think about is the Lawrence Loop. You know, that was years ago, it was just a bunch of different trails, not fully connected, no graphic that even showed how it could be connected. And then that was created and the idea kind of spawned from there and now we're, you know, we can see the possibility of being completed in the next few years. So that's a great transportation asset, recreational asset, tourist asset, and so on. And how do we think about, like people know Lawrence because of the loop that goes around the city. And that seems like a, a pretty uh, obvious one to me. The uh, Safe Routes to School work that's been done for several years now, um, doesn't have this component, but it could. Uh, Columbia, Missouri made a really big effort to build uh, a walking school bus program and their real, real estate uh, developers and people that in that in that industry touted their walking school buses as like a key thing that brought people into the into their community. Um, I don't know that it's still uh, viable, but they had paid facilitators that would coordinate, um, walking school bus routes um, for all of their elementary schools, as I understood it. And I think that's something that would take an investment uh, probably by, you know, someone like Parks and Rec to think about how do you get people that are professionally trained to uh, coordinate walking school buses at all of our schools. And probably a lot of parents would volunteer to help with that. There's already parents that are walking their kids to school. So it's more about identifying those parents that are willing to do that, get probably some training, 
and then create a schedule, identify the kids that want to be part of the walking school bus program. I know Columbia had some fact, some uh, temperature ranges below 40, they didn't walk. Um, but otherwise, your kids were walked um, from their front door all the way to the school. Um, and they just kind of assembled together and kept walking and the group got larger and larger and um, it made the neighborhoods there, I guess, really distinct. So I think that's something that's, you know, no one in Kansas is doing that that I've ever found. So there's something that would be uniquely Lawrence. Um, our transit system next year is, I think, going to be, you know, making a pretty big statement about what it's like to have fare free transit. And that's huge. And it's only a pilot, but it really distinguishes us from all the other transit systems, um, not just in Kansas, but all across the country. There aren't there aren't very many fare free transit systems. If you find them, they're usually in university towns. So I think it really fits well to be part of the image of Lawrence. You can come here and jump on a bus um, and don't worry about how to pay for it. It's already covered. So that's a I think that's a big one. And going um, further with transit, as we think about bus stops, um, other communities will make really bold statements about their transportation investment by being bus stops that are noticeable, um, not just generic you know, shelters or benches. They literally are you know, clearly there and you kind of get a sense, oh, this community cares about transit. Look what they've done. <clears throat> Look what they've done. So those to me are options we could consider is how do we get transit to be bolder about um, the signage that they use and the stops that they create so that, you know, it's not just a little blue circle that you can hardly read, but it's maybe larger and clear and, you know, somehow just more unmistakable that it's part of our transit system. I'd probably argue that that one actually is in progress and you probably know this, but over the past year or two, Adam's been doing a really good job with kind of engaging with the neighborhood and other artists to kind of get really interesting bus stops like the one near my house has a giant train axle and my kid loves to see that one. So it's, um, yep. to him, that bus stop is unmistakable. I mean, what, what people right now would say is unmistakable about our transit system are these homemade benches that are at stops. That's true. And I don't think that's what we should be known yeah. for. So we got to think about, you know, what's, what's the bold statement that says, oh, that's Lawrence, you know, yep, they have those kind of transit stops. Yeah. Um, we don't have, we have a lot of bike, uh, parks in Lawrence. There's no bike park. And I think a park where you could take your kids to learn how to ride your bikes would be a great investment. There are parks that I can think of, but I think that's up to the Parks and Rec Department to think about. Where are their undeveloped parks? Well, there's a few that I can name, uh, but maybe there's one that's are, you know, already in your mind, but a place where kids can go ride safely, learn how to ride safely, maybe even get really bold and figure out how to create a something that could be used for competition. <laughs> so if you have enough space, you know, you got the training wheels kind of park, and then you got the next level up, and then you got the, you know, the, 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 ser the serious riders. I mean, yeah. we do this with skating, maybe not to the level that other communities do, but no one's really doing that with biking. So that's to me would be a, that would be a great investment. Um, we're talking about wayfinding. We're hearing about wayfinding. Wayfinding is a really obvious one. You know, those, those things would make us seem to be um, more visible. Uh, shared mobility, a lot of communities now you go to, and that's just part of what you see. There's, whether it's shared bikes or shared scooters, that's just a sign of the times of some communities. And so that could be easily added to Lawrence. Um, our roundabouts are kind of dull. I mean, 
some of them get maintained, I think, a little bit, but a lot of them are just kind of like nothing really changes. Um, in Bend, Oregon, those are places where they put public art. And who knows what we could come up with if we thought more creatively than just tending to the greenery or the, I don't know, I think there's no flowers in, in, around us anymore. But it seems like we haven't really explored what's possible with, I think we have 16, 17, 18 roundabouts. Like, let's be more creative with those. Um, intersection murals, East Lawrence did this. Um, I don't know how they, well they stood up over time, but that's cool, and that's uniquely Lawrence. Like, how many other neighborhoods would want to have a mural that could be, you know, decorate their streets? Um, bike boulevards, I'm kind of up in the air about it, but I recognize, like, it's another one of those things that people would start to see, oh, yeah, they do that in Lawrence. And then um, bike parking, uh, we don't do a great job at all with bike parking, and yet, it's another one of those, if you did it well, it would be pretty noticeable. It takes up space. It's kind of like transit stops. I mean, you would see it, and it would tell visitors, like, hey, this town really cares about bicycling because look at what they've done. They've got bike lockers and other, you know, higher-end facility types that are used to secure bikes when they're being stored as people are, you know, shopping in downtown or whatever. So that's my list. And I'm just getting started, so I think a lot of this is just thinking creatively about the things we already do and saying, how do we take it to the next level? You know, with public, I don't know what that ordinance is that requires us to do 2% uh, for art for major infrastructure projects. Well, I don't know how, how we could weave that over into, like, thinking about transportation, but it seems like something like that is already being done. Maybe it'd just be thinking along those lines with all the other things we do for transportation. Hmm. All good items, thanks. My list is about the same length. <laughs> do you have any in common? <laughs> um, so I think about places I've been around the world that I really like traveling to, and the reason I go to them is specifically because their transportation is not like ours. So I can go to them, I don't have to drive, so I go there to bike, to take the train, to uh, walk, um, mostly. So I think about things like Utrecht, Netherlands, and Copenhagen, where we stayed in an apartment complex that you walk out the front door, and the road there is actually a bike road. And what you do is you get on it, and you bike wherever you want to go. I mean, it doesn't stay on a bike road the whole time, but it is just bikes. However, I've always looked at Lawrence and said, well, we're a suburban environment. We're in the US. It's very different. And so we don't have the density and quite the same sort of setup to be able to do things like that. So then I start looking around and saying, well, you know, we're really pretty good. And then I go to places like, um, I'm in Boulder, which I lived in for a while. But recently, I've been to quite a few other college towns. My son just started uh, college in Norman, Oklahoma. And I have to say, we went to Norman the, whole, the first time, and I drove into town, and I was like, oh, yuck, you know, um, Midwestern suburban sprawl. But um, last weekend, I knew about this before, but last weekend we were there, and we went with the entire family. There were eight of us there, and stayed in an Airbnb by the university, and walked everywhere. And I would say it's like, you know, if you stay in Lawrence, you, you're in Old West Lawrence, it might be kind of a similar thing. But I actually found it to be much more comfortable to walk in um, because the roads were narrower. A lot of them are, are slower paced. There were certain things that were um, 
kind of similar. And I remember my, my son saying, well, I don't want to live on this side of Boyd Street because I have to cross Boyd Street. And I'm looking at Boyd Street going, yeah, this doesn't feel so bad to me, like compared to you know places you might have to cross 19th Street to go to KU, it's actually busier and wider. Um, but one of the things that Norman had that I really appreciated, and I, we've talked about in the past here, when we, when, way back when, when we were doing the Pedestrian Bicycle Issues Task Force, one of the things, I think this was the, correct me someone if I've forgotten my timelines here, but um, there was a, a kind of vision of the loop. Um, this might have been prior to that, actually. Uh, but you know, we started talking about the loop, and then spokes going into Lawrence. And I, one of those was 21st Street Bike Boulevard, which now exists. Um, but we started talking about a lot of things. And I remember one of the things I looked at that I think is very useful in a town that is suburban and not that dense are, are areas where you have linear parks, which we've already talked about. But now I've seen a fair amount of these that I think, boy, these are awfully nice in this kind of situation. Um, you might have some something like Boulder where the linear parks are right next to some destination that you're going to or not. Sometimes they're they're off a little off the beaten path. Um, but the one that we walked through um, in Norman is called the Legacy Trail. So I encourage anybody that be interested in looking at it to look at it. And it runs along a train track, which it's right next to the train track. I mean, it's so close to the train track that I'm like, it can't. I can't imagine that it's, I mean, I guess it, going through this area here, um, maybe it's a little closer, but uh, it's right next to the train track. And it's, and it's kind of cool to, to be able to, um, you know, walk along there. You can walk from the, can't, the university and the um, sort of the university downtown area, which Lawrence could use also, but uh, to their actual downtown, you can walk along this path and it's, it's a long linear path with, very few, mostly uh, train tracks um, that you have to cross. And so I just really appreciated something like that. And I know when we looked before, one of the things I saw in Lawrence and started mapping out were the um, places that that can still be done, that there's still green space that you could put a, a path like that on and it would take you from one place to another. Um, and at that time, the one I brought up, there are plenty, but, but maybe this is because it's close to home. Um, is there's a very small trail off of 23rd and Iowa, sorry, 20, 23rd and um, it's between Iowa and Castle and it goes through the drainage area. It's near Pepper Tree Apartments. But if you follow that green space behind houses on one side, I think it's a city easement and behind or and through East Campus or West Campus, sorry, I'm getting my towns confused, West Campus, uh, you can see that that path will take you from basically somewhere on 6th Street out to, you know, almost the loop, or maybe it was the loop. I, I'd have to go back and look. So I just think things like that are really great when you can connect those. I want to go to this place, but if I also, if I wanted to bike with my kid to the uh, uh, movie theater, you know, I could. Mine are all getting older, but <laughs> someone could. Great, <laughs> cool. thanks. Um, well, some of these are kind of kind of related, but I think you know that discussion of connectivity and you know the loop is a is a wonderful asset, and I think you know it's becoming more and more well known. And but going from there and getting the connections across town in both directions so that people can use it, use more of a part of the loop perhaps for transportation, and then getting them to 
to destinations that they want to go to. And, and you know, the wayfinding and education of people who want to bike but aren't familiar with the, with the network, you know, so, and I don't know, I mean, there are wayfinding facilities, you know, accommodation and some on the loop and in some places, but, um, you know, we, I've talked to people who have just recently moved to Lawrence and actually other people who are just new to biking and even the loop, they say, well, I want to be able to go all the way around town. I know it's not completed, but how do I do that? You know, so some way so that in the interim until 2027 or whatever, that people know how to safely get around on the loop. And then, you know, like you, like you mentioned, the bike boulevard, but other, other ways of getting across town, um, north and south and east and west that connect you to destinations. Um, another, I mean, kind of related to that, I think, you know, I've ridden on the Kansas City um, fountain ride that they have, you know, because they all the fountains in Kansas City, and there are like 60 of them, and they give you this, this sheet and a route, and there's information, you know, historical information about the the uh, different fountains, and then there's a route to go to all of them or, or portions of them, you know, and this, you know, Althea mentioned all the parks and ones, and there are lots of, of these trails that you don't necessarily know about, you know, unless you live right next to it, you may not know those things, and something that would help people in the community become more familiar with all of those and how they might connect up, you know, they, uh, if you knew that those were there, then uh, you know you might be able to you know make a make a connection more easily. You know, people just don't study maps so so much, making it easier for people to understand what exists. Um, you know, the whole idea of making more use of the river. I think that's a, that's huge in terms of you know you see uh, communities that have capitalized on the use of the riverfront and. You know, adding transportation to that, I think, is, is really uh, going to be critical, uh, you know, to, to really move us, move us forward. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, that idea of peer communities and looking at, um, you know, we've looked at in the past, you know, some of the communities that have the platinum level or gold level bicycle-friendly communities and kind of looking at, you know, some of the specifics in terms of plans and what they're what they've done um, you know some of those are larger cities so it may not apply although there may be portions of that that may be may be useful uh, to us to you know to look at and you know I think overall I think you know looking at transportation and really understanding that there needs to be more balance between multimodal and automobile accommodation, you know, that, uh, that we really reprioritize that somewhat in this, in this community if we really want to have transportation be part of an unmistakable identity. Because that's, I think, in those other cities that we've talked about, that's, that's really what it has come down to, you know, that we don't build roads that, you know, are wide and fast and, and don't accommodate pedestrians and bicycles. Yeah, I think it's probably a good point is that when it comes to unmistakable identity and transportation, at least in our minds, we generally jump directly to non-motorized stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, or transit for that matter, but not car. And I think that's probably because <laughs> this is, so I actually really like cars. You, you may not 
believe that based on <laughs> my behavior sometimes, but um, the cities that have a really interesting and unique car culture are big cities, Houston, Tokyo, LA, Dubai. You're never going to have a car culture in Lawrence. It's like, oh, you know, the Lawrence style vehicle. No, you're never going to see that. So there's no way we can really capitalize on that anyway. Mm. So let's go for the stuff that's more at human scale for a city mm. of our size. And a lot of the stuff we're already doing is what I'm kind of gathering here. Have you been to Cheyenne? No. That's not that big of a city. They have a thing? Oh, they, I mean, I don't know if you've been, if you grew up in a town, but people like actually get in their old cars and drive up and down the drag strip. <clears throat> Cheyenne, that's what people do. Nice. And it's just part of the culture. <laughs> Showing off their old vehicles. But only if you're in a Chevy Cheyenne pickup truck, right? Otherwise, sorry. <laughs> no, there are all kinds of different vehicles, but it's like, I get what you're saying. There's a car culture. It's kind of like the... Like the hot rod thing. The hot rod thing, but they get their hot rods out. Mm -hmm. And I forgot what day of the week it is, but it's one day a week. And I was on my way back from a road trip and stopped there, went out to dinner, and ended up in the middle of it going, what's going on? <laughs> <clears throat> but, you know, I've been to Cheyenne a few times, and it's not a very huge town. So, but it's just part of their thing. Yeah. Um, um, I'm curious to hear from other, well, let's see. So it's 539. Um, I'm curious to hear from other members of the, oh, sorry. I, I saw Jake. I was like, we're done. No, sorry. <laughs> um, I, I thought what you were saying was really interesting. I think what we're talking about that's happening in a lot of European cities and other places is that you're, you're trying to change the way people think. Uh, it isn't that we're trying to force motorists to allow bicyclists on the street. We're trying to see that we're all sharing this space for travel and it's not it's not first for cars only. You know what I mean? Trying to transfer that thinking of how we get around to. And I think that people who live in Lawrence love to walk. I think they view it as very walkable. A lot of people have really gotten into walking as exercise. So just as being a pedestrian is good exercise it's also maybe just a way you want to go up and down mass avenue and enjoy it but there's also a lot of people who are walking our neighborhoods and on days they can't do that they're going over to the parks and rec uh people love the um the the track i mean it has really been fantastic that people who are committed to walking every day or exercising every day are using both i think that shows like a a way that parks and rec has brought that to people people love um, Rock Chalk Park, I think it's been amazing, amazing to see it full of people. I mean, obviously, COVID changed out for a while, but I think it'll be continue to be great like that uh, in that way. One of the things I was thinking when I was recently in California, and, and I've heard this recently from somebody here who works with Spanish-speaking people who live in town, uh, who are working in town or trying to use transit and find out more about routes and the bus system and just have more information. Um, this person was telling me that many of these people, actually, their first language is more indigenous to where they're from. Spanish is kind of their, Spanish and English are kind of their other languages. So she was appealing that we, as we go forward, we keep thinking about making information available in more than just English. So that these people who need, they could be taking the bus for work. Maybe they have to be at their restaurant job or at a hotel job at seven in the morning, but they don't know how to get, they don't know how to utilize the system. They don't know how to find the information. So she's involved in helping them through the Ballard Center, helping people who need to find that information. But she's saying, as we go forward, if we can have more information that's in more than one language, it would really help. So, my input. 
All right. Well, that's a lot of pretty good ideas. I kind of want to hear from the unmistakable identity team as well. Um, I don't know if Derek, if you had any, oh, any more, but I'll let Stephen talk. He's yeah. Quite a bit. And then if we can try to wrap this up by maybe five fifty, then I want to have some public comment at the end as well. So. Oh, okay. Who's first? Adam, do you want to go first? Go three, Adam. <laughs> hey there, Adam. I put a couple things in the chat, so maybe I can just speak to those. Charlie brought a couple of them up. Um, just for let's go on uh, trying to go fair free this upcoming year, so that's scheduled uh, for 2023. But I do think there's a chance that could continue depending on how federal funding rolls in. Um, a couple of the other identity things that we're looking to do, of course, um, full electrification of our fleet. I think it's a big, bold goal that um, fits with a lot of uh, Lawrence culture already. And then accessibility is one that maybe people aren't seeing as much of right now, but um, speaking to the amount of bus stop improvements we've been able to do in the last few years, um, we're trying to get our 376 bus stops to be 100% ADA compliant. Um, and we don't have a timeline for that yet. Uh, you know, we're working on how fast we're able to make improvements, but uh, those are some big things that we're, that we're working on as well. Um, you alluded to some of the artwork. There's certainly a lot of uh, unique things we can do with bus stops. Those projects are slower. Um, there's a big payoff. You know, a lot of a lot of people really love them and they stand out. Um, a single artistic bus stop is a lot more time and meetings and effort than um, than us moving forward with prefabricated materials. So that's just a calculation we have to consider when we're trying to do um, a lot of work that that we're behind on and and trying to get you know, bus stops where they need to be. So those are just a couple of thoughts I had to add to the conversation, but happy to engage as you all move forward. Cool. Thanks, Adam. Oh, I, I think, you know, judging from the, to speaking from the unmistakable identity team, uh, side, I think with a lot of the things that have been said here, uh, that first step as we, as we, move into the strategic plan and work as this team, I think a lot of those early steps are going to be identifying where the connections are and, and, and building on those partnerships. I think Derek alluded to that as well. But where can we do, you know, for, for things that already have an identity, whether that be, um, you know, downtown Lawrence or some of the events that, that are held here or our universities, how do we bring transportation into those conversations more fully and, and with a wider uh, lens is kind of those early steps. Um, I, I certainly hope that we can you know, build from those onto um, you know, whether that be adding pieces to that, that identity, uh, expanding on pieces that are already existing. Um, you know, a, a discussion that I was having earlier uh, today is we have uh, that Lawrence Loop, it's continuing to, to be built, we're adding to it. Uh, what are ways that we can celebrate that more? Uh, and I think that you know, a lot of the, the connected city, that branch of the strategic plan goes to that infrastructure and the unmistakable identity piece speaks a little more to the, the social aspect and how do we build those. Um, and so that, that's kind of where I see the team from a personal standpoint. I think you know, building on what Charlie said, a lot of where you can see that growth is um, bringing in 
youth and bringing in accessibility and honestly not just youth especially with some of these multimodal options uh, you do not have to be a child to be your first commute by bike <laughs> um, and so you know how how can we you know how can this commission how can the unmistakable identity team help with that knowledge and marketing and, and you know, get to people uh, make them feel more comfortable so that they feel that's part of something that they care about and they want their city to care about um, so I think those are some of those early steps on how do we build um, future or, or you know, more experienced, more competent people that want to be a part of this. And then also, I think, you know, from coordinating those, those many voices, uh, I think that it's easy, especially personally. I, I'm a cyclist. I, that's my favorite. Um, but I remember having staff at some of the rec centers that how do I skate? <laughs> How do I ride my skateboard to work? Uh, it, it, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that, that's not something that I'm as familiar with. And so, you know, encouraging those voices, and I think that that's what we've been focused on very in these these earlier steps in the process. Do we have anybody else on the call who is going to chime in? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Jessica, are you going to or I was... Okay, no, okay, thanks. Uh, Roger Steinbrock, uh, Parks and Recreation. You know, we, we've covered a lot of ground and one of the things I look at are existing things that we have in place as we move to this idea that Parks and Recreation, Arts and Culture are part of what we do. One of the things that I, I'm looking, I mean, I'm, I'm already seeing this synergy kind of growing is looking at like the downtown sculptures that we have that people walk downtown to view the sculptures why not put these along uh, the trail and we could actually integrate that into even a temporary art piece as we go down the trail uh, which would get people to the trails and transportation and then bridging those or basically combining you know your work as a commission and then we have the Arts and Culture Commission kind of coming together and joining forces to celebrate Lawrence with art and the transportation side of things. I'll just, you know, that's just an idea that's uh, popped into my head and just looking at ways to integrate these other relationships that we have uh, throughout our boards and commissions and how we all can, can work together. Because um, I think that would bring people out to the trails more, um, whether walking, biking, um, and it also pre presents people with art as they're writing as well. So just a real quick thought uh, on that. And it might be something that Dave, uh, with, with this commission, and then Abby's heading up the Arts and Culture Commission, that could be something that we could do jointly, potentially. Just a thought um, as we work towards, you know, looking at our metrics and trying to move the needles. Thank you. <clears throat> Yeah, so just real quickly so you can be on time, but I think this builds on a lot of the work and things that we've talked about over time. A lot of the things Charlie mentioned are things we've looked into with safe routes to school and other work, but there's never been a player that's been responsible for some of these cultural advocacy things within the community. And I think finding those champions is really going to be key to doing this work. So if that home is with some of the partners of unmistakable identity, then I think it's really exciting to be able to do that. I think that's the catch we've always had and recognize some of these best practices and ideas that are around placemaking and um, cultural programmatic 
elements is that they haven't had a home. Um, but I think there's probably things in our plans that support this in terms of just an evolution from even the bicycle rideability map conversation. We um, included Explore Lawrence and some of those conversations this year and some historic interest in the county and thinking about what would county bike rides look like to some of those sites or what would if we had bike share or scooter share, what would it look like to show people where you can go in terms of locations you can here you can get a lunch or you know whether it's sponsored or not little rides that you could attract people here's where you can rent a bike when you're in town or um, a ride different rides you can do a, the, as Pat mentioned the fountain walk I think that's something that Arkansas if you look at their examples they're doing those types of things they're giving you curated experiences um, and that's something about your identity that shares um, and gives somebody an insight to maybe the first ride that gets them on the hook for um, future experiences. So um, I think it was a good conversation, but we have we've we have more work to do. So it'll be exciting to see what happens with the, the strategic plan. So that brings us to nine minutes before the hour. Um, and Jessica, that was actually a pretty good segue for having champions of of I guess interesting ideas that fall under the unmistakable identity. Um, with that, I'd like to go into public comment at this point. I think there are some people might fit that bill here. So if you guys can keep it to maybe th three minutes each, um, just, just so we can make sure to keep on time, that'd be awesome. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> he's going for it. Okay, is this uh, interfaced with people on Zoom? Yes. Thank you. He's okay. Oh, no. well, I can't. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, this is a encouraging conversation to to hear. Uh, thank you for your first of all your service to Lawrence. Um, but specifically, thank you for ex exploring this topic of unmistakable identity. Uh, when I first heard that a few years ago, um, it, it really grabbed my attention. It's um, the language we use to try and describe what it is we want to bring into reality. Uh, the words we use to describe our vision are very important. Um, and. This is a broad idea, unmistakable identity. I think it's in the realm of what a lot of environmental designers do, public artists do, um, infrastructure designers do it. Um, but how it is specifically done and tailored to this community or whatever community it's happening in is where we really need to make sure we have that right uh, specific set of intentions. And in the context we're talking about here, um, we're talking about unmistakable identity. I think we're talking about aesthetics. We're talking about education. We're talking about context. We're talking about transit connections. We're talking about ecology. Um, we're talking about how humans interface with the things that we create. We've become a society that creates amazing things Yet we have sort of lost touch with how humans interact with these things. What is the narrative? What is the consensus that got us here? What was the initial intent aesthetically? 
that starts informing how unmistakable identity is unique to us here and the narratives that are important to us. So I'm a part of um, the Riverfront and Center team. That's uh, Steve Evans, also here. Michael Allman, Sue Joy Dahar, Mike Myers, and Chris Tilden. And what's your name? Sorry. And I'm Kent Williams. <laughs> Forgot to do that. I'm a Pinckney resident. Um, so I think most of you have seen this. Uh, I'll just quickly go over what we've been pulling together. Uh, this shows six phases in closing the loop from Santa Fe Station to Bircham Park, and then it also addresses conflicts that exist in this area for humans. It addresses the conflicts that the train tracks creates, it addresses the conflicts of the twin bridges, and it addresses the wonderful barrier that is the river and getting across that river. So Riverfront and Center is the name of our team. One of the reasons we created that is because however hard we focus on trying to come up with these solutions to further connect the components of the loop adjacent to the river, we forget about the river because the way Lawrence has developed, it has disconnected the asset that is downtown from the river. Um, this is something that we've grown accustomed to and I dare say almost accepted it as normal. It's not normal. We need access to the river. Thanks to Friends of the Caw, uh, 20 years ago there wasn't public access. Now we have 20 points of access. It takes that sort of dedication to reconnect our communities to what is our greatest asset, which, which is this river. Um, some examples of unmistakable identity. Oh. Um, so I was going to give him six minutes, if that's okay. It sounds like okay. Steve is going to cede his three minutes to him, so it's unusual, but <laughs> sorry. Okay, so I'm just going to conclude quickly here with some examples of relevant projects that I think created their own version of this unmistakable identity. This is Austin, Texas, a pedestrian bridge and park space floating over the river. Greenville, North Carolina, another infrastructure project adjacent to a thriving downtown, but there was a disconnect between this fantastic park space where multiple creeks come together. Now it's been reinvigorated with this piece of infrastructure. This body of water here to the screen left is the Columbia River. This is a myelin project where infrastructure uh, has a specific, a very specific aesthetic intention. Another example of a, a project in a riverfront here in, in Wichita, Black Bear Boson Sculpture, which was previously very inaccessible, now has two twin bridges and seven fire pots. This has become a gathering place simply by adding fire and accessibility to the river's confluence. And then finally, a, re, a great example of a repurposed project over the Des Moines uh, river in Iowa, um, the High Trestle Project, where artists infused periodic sculptures. Thank you for mentioning that earlier as an opportunity in our city to further what's already happening. This is just a delightful example of, of uh, iconic identity uh, and infrastructure. So 
thank you all for doing what you're doing. It's a really great time for this conversation to be happening. Uh, we hope to support it. Uh, we hope city staff has the resources they need to continue doing what they do and expand that so that we can grow this opportunity to really tell the story of unmistakable identity that's specific to who we are at this point in time aware of our challenging and beautiful history. Anything else, Steve? No. All right, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Ken. Well, that brings us to about six o'clock, so that was pretty well-timed. Um, thank you, everybody. Can I add just a yes. little thing to this? I was hoping to see the example of Kansas City's um, aspirational plan to build something like this that also includes, like, restaurant space or dining space. I don't remember the name of it, but I, I remember a few years ago sharing it with Steve Evans, and it was just amazing. Like, to think, oh, you could just hang out over the river and, you know, meet there after hours or whatever and just it felt like a place people would want to gather and you know uh, over a river is not a place you normally can gather so it just it should be bigger than just a trail to me it should be more than that like can you put food carts out there at, at the very least um but having a place you know kind of like downtown dining has transformed itself like could you not dine over the river i for one want to see the sandbar really cool the sandbar Bridge, I think. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right in that little circle in the middle. Perfect. Yeah. Anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. Well, thank you very much to the Unmistakable Identity team for walking us through what you guys are doing and for listening to our kind of wild ideas. But I think there's a this is an exciting strategic plan team. So I'll be I'll be interested to see what you guys come up with. We're uh, welcome to we invite you to some of the meetings and uh, with. Like to hear your inputs, and we have changed the meetings with the strategic plan outcome areas where we meet every odd month. But what we're going to do is for the networking with the community partners, and the mistake identity is a lot of outside partners, not just internal city staff. Mm -hmm. Is on the even months we're going to meet, and just for the networking of what's going on in the community, and you know, it might be the Belgian mm -hmm. waffle race is going on, and how can we tie that with another event? And mm -hmm. it's just daisy chaining, so the people mm -hmm. go, let's go to Lawrence for the weekend. There's going to be a lot of great things going on. So. Mm -hmm. That sounds kind of cool. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, we're at the top of the hour, so let's take a 10-minute break. Is that reasonable? Come back at 6. Oh, well, 14-minute breaks. 14-minute yeah. <laughs> break. Thanks, guys. Thanks. All right. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the October 3rd Multimodal Transportation Commission meeting. This is our regular meeting, and um, we're going to start with the roll call. Let's do that. Yes, Dave, current engineer. We don't need to do roll call anymore, but I will Wait, uh, read through our, our intro. So, okay. Um, good evening, everyone. A few housekeeping items for this hybrid meeting. The meeting is being recorded and broadcast on the city's YouTube channel and cable channel 25. Please remember to mute yourself during the meeting when you're not speaking. The chat function for this public meeting is disabled. All chats will go directly to me. Unless you are participating during the meeting, please turn your video off. This allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting. When you're participating, please turn your video on. If you have any trouble, you can send us a chat. 
Um, the city reserves the right to mute people or turn individual videos off to minimize the distractions during the meeting. And uh, that's our intro, so I'll turn the meeting back over to Chairperson Kuzmiak. Yeah. Um, would you mind explaining the roll call thing? I'm kind of curious, because I know we're still in technically a hybrid meeting format, even though everybody's here. Um, is that just something that the, the city is now doing? We're just not doing roll call at meetings anymore? Correct. Okay. Yeah. Everyone's here in person, and since we're not having, you know, we don't have anyone attending online, so. Sounds good. That makes sense. Kind of back to normal. It feels normal already. In that respect, yeah. Almost back. All right. Sounds good. Well, we're going to start by approving the minutes from the September 7th meeting. Um, I'll just go ahead and say I was not here, so I'm going to abstain from this one. And I don't believe I've had a chance to watch the entire meeting yet, so. Also, it looks like you need to have a password and a, a username to sign in to see the minutes. So I don't know if that's something that can be fixed, but. Um, you should be on your browser. It did you open your Gmail? Um, I can. Well, no. On the top tab, the second or third one, you should be able to get to them. Hmm. Okay. And it is in the agenda packet. Oh, it's, it's in the packet. Okay. Okay. That's fine. You have to download it, I believe. I guess so. Open it up in uh, yeah. Acrobat. I, I still maintain that a link that goes to a password wall is probably not a great idea on a public-facing site, but... As long as there's a way to get it, that's, that's good enough. I make a motion to approve the minutes from uh, September. I'll second that. That was Commissioner Collette and seconded by Commissioner Bryan, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Amen <coughs> Baltuska? Uh, yes. Laura Bennett? Yes. Will Sharp? Yes. Aaron Payton? Yes. Pat Collette? Yes. Charlie Bryan? Yes. Nick Kuzmiak? Abstain. Althea Schnacki? Yes. Motion carries. All right. Thank you, everybody. First item is, well, I guess second item, is public comment. So I'll just read the spiel real quick for those who aren't familiar. The public is allowed to speak to any items or issues that are not scheduled on the regular agenda. Public comment will not be received for staff items, commission items, or calendar. Each person or organization will be limited to three minutes. As a general practice, the commission will not discuss nor debate these items, nor will the commission make decisions on items presented at this time. Individuals are asked to come to the microphone, sign in, and state the name and address. Speakers should address all comments to the commission. Do we have anybody in the room who wishes to make a general public comment? Okay, anybody on the call? Uh, no one has their hand. Okay. Looks like it's going to be a quiet item C for tonight. Let's move on to the main agenda items. Number one is receive update from KDOT on multimodal improvements with the South Lawrence Trafficway. Yeah, Dave Cronin, city engineer. Um, so we got uh, staff from KDOT and HNTB, the design consultant, who's um, working on plans for the SLT. So last year, I think we um, brought some preliminary plans to the MMTC. Um, the uh, project's now uh, funded for construction, so it's moving forward into, into the construction pipeline with KDOT and their new uh, transportation program. And um, so, so staff's here to kind of run through the plan sheets. Um, and just this is going to be an interactive discussion. Uh, if there's any uh, comments, questions on design, um, we've got uh, 
complicated on HNTBs to have to walk through it. Nothing on the plans has been decided by any means, and I think this is just kind of start restarting the conversation on the design, uh, particularly of the city street connections to uh, K10 and the bike ped infrastructure. So uh, we'll just uh, turn it over, over to those guys to bring up the plans and kind of start walking through, uh, walking through it. Cool. Thank you. Good evening. Uh, my name is Jordan Herbert. As uh, Dave was mentioning, I'm uh, a project manager for HNTB Corporation, who KDOT has hired as the um, lead con design consultant for the project. Uh, Chris Norton uh, is here uh, as the representative from KDOT. So uh, as Dave was mentioning, the, the goal tonight will be to review the uh, multimodal improvements uh, with the SLT, the South Lawrence Trafficway project. Um, we'll focus mostly on the shared use path, but mention a few other things as we walk through the, uh, the exhibits here. Um, one correction that, uh, or slight clarification, um, so the South Lawrence Trafficway Westlake project is split into two phases, uh, the north or the 02 phase and the south or the 03 phase. That dividing line is just north of 6th Street. So the south goes just north of 6th Street, uh, south and east to um, the, include the improvements at Iowa US 59. And then north is predominantly focused at the I-70 K-10 interchange. Um, the south uh, project is funded for construction um, and uh, has an anticipated letting in mid-2024. Um, the north project is not yet funded for construction. It is funded for utility relocations and right-of-way acquisition. So just one minor clarification there. Okay. So I think we'll, we can start at Clinton Parkway. Um, um, you actually have to share your screen like you're in a Zoom meeting. <coughs> Thank you. Dave told me I needed to do that and I forgot, so. <laughs> Sorry about that. Work. Okay, thank you. So Clinton Parkway, uh, you can, uh, we'll start with what the current proposed improvements are, um, and we'll hit Clinton Parkway, we'll hit Wakarusa Interchange, and US 59 Iowa Street. Um, you can see the aerial in the background, um, the existing improvements. Um, what's currently proposed uh, is that we will have a shared use path on either side of Clinton Parkway tying into the existing paths. Um, those will continue through the replacement of the, link, of the Lake Point uh, Drive roundabout with Clinton Parkway. That's a very similarly sized roundabout as what's out there today to give you some perspective. Uh, the shared use paths continue on both sides of Clinton Parkway as you approach the uh, westbound ramp roundabout terminal. The shared use path splits and goes north as a continuation of the Lawrence Loop as currently proposed. It also goes south um, to connect to the southern portion of the Lawrence Loop on the south side of Clinton Parkway down to the spillway portion of the Lawrence Loop. There is a proposed shared use path that also now connects up uh, and goes on the west side of East 900 Road up to the, uh, the improvements um, 
along the boat storage facility. And then there's a little stub right here that you can see that is new since we've last presented to this commission. Um, that's East State 75. Um, unfortunately, I don't have a graphic that, go, that goes all the way up there, but that's basically a proposed uh, collector road, one lane in each direction that connects up to North 1500. Would it be possible to zoom in just a little bit more and then use your, uh, you're probably using your yes, cursor, so, but I'm yeah, not able Yeah, this to is East State 75. That's the uh, road I was just talking about with the collector. Okay. Um, this is East 900 Road with the shared use path on the west, predominantly the west side. So we added arrows. This is this is not proposed lane marking or anything like that. This is to help understand the movement of each lane and direction, how many uh, lanes in each direction. Um, so the uh, shared use path was kept on the south side here of Clinton to avoid crossing the eastbound ramps. Um, to try to minimize the amount of uh, lanes that are being crossed. Um, the Lawrence Loop, I think there was a, there is some modifications that can be made here to this portion where we can tie in a bit sooner. Um, it's being picked up here as the, at the existing location, and this is a grade change, a profile change, that is driving the profile of East 900 Road up to meet with the roundabout that connects to the eastbound ramps. Again, following along the south side of Clinton Parkway here, one lane in each direction with a wide median. Um, currently proposed the Lawrence Loop would go under K-10 so no conflict with mainline traffic. It goes under those bridges. And then it does cross the westbound K-10 exit, uh, exit ramp, the lane that goes into the roundabout, and then also the uh, what's called a bypass lane that allows uh, movement from the exit ramp to Clinton Parkway going east. Lawrence Loop is currently proposed to then cross Clinton Parkway, again crossing the bypass lane, the exiting Clinton Parkway eastbound lane, the entering Clinton Parkway westbound lane, and then the bypass lane to get onto the westbound entrance ramp. And then this continues on west and to the north, connecting up at East 902 Road. And there are, um, there is some cleanup here going on at East 902 Road where there's a couple crossings today and we're minimizing that and crossing just at the northern end there. A couple uh, other points just here. Um, that I think have been previously discussed or asked about at various public um, in, uh, encounters. Uh, the bypass lanes um, are in use here, are proposed to be in use. Um, 
one of the main reasons for the westbound exit bypass lane is to help uh, alleviate queuing back onto the freeway to allow movements going eastbound uh, to not get blocked by those uh, Clinton through movements. So as the Clinton through movement comes eastbound, there is predicted to not be in, uh, enough gaps to allow for enough movement of the uh, those entering the roundabout from the westbound exit ramp uh, that it would cause a queuing back up without the bypass lane. Similar situation going eastbound on Clinton um, to the entrance ramp. The close spacing of the two roundabouts, the bypass lanes allows for the appropriate operational benefits to be realized at the Lake Point roundabout while not having queuing back up between the two roundabouts. Yeah, good, good, no, good question, Chris, or good point. Uh, so these roundabouts, the entry and exit speeds are designed at 25 miles per hour. Um, the curves in and out are purposely designed to, uh, to slow traffic down to that speed. Um, there is a mountable median. You could surely go faster than that and, and, and mount the median and go through it, but the speed, the design speed of these roundabouts are 25 miles per an hour. Do we stop and have discussion? Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were going to yeah. keep going for a while, if we, if we should just butt in at any point. You, you so. can butt in at any point. I should have made that clear, yeah. That's okay. No worries. Go for so, it. <clears throat> The, this roundabout that has the bypass lanes in it, you said the bypass lanes were necessary because there would be an inadequate number of gaps. Can you, under, can you help us understand that? Like, sure. I think that means there's going to be a lot of cars going through that roundabout. Is yes. That yes. So, uh, good question. Um, you know, there are each each leg of the roundabout is analyzed and and. Um, how traffic is processing through that. So the tool that we use is called a VISIM model, V-I-S-S-I-M, um, and it basically takes into um, account existing traffic grown to a predicted uh, volume, um, understanding development, uh, anticipated development, what's in um, the, uh, the plan. And you look at each leg of the the roundabout and also how that traffic is passing through the roundabout. So a major movement is the through traffic. So as Clinton eastbound traffic uh, approaches the roundabout, it is um, having a free, a more free flow movement, doesn't have a ton of um, folks in conflict with them coming around, around the roundabout uh, to make a U-turn. So it is uh, entering the roundabout at a, a fairly... Um, low speed but not yielding that often. So in order for this lane of traffic that is entering the roundabout to go westbound on Clinton Parkway, there needs to be enough gaps to allow that traffic to flow into the roundabout. 
And so given the conflict of movements there, we often look at, well, what does the queuing look like in the peak hour at different times of the day uh, that um, we need to accommodate to uh, account for all the vehicles safely on the ramp and through the roundabout and so on. So without the bypass lane, uh, because of this heavy movement and folks coming from Clinton to go west, um, the eastbound bypass lanes allows people to, as early as here, get into that bypass lane to go east, thus reducing that queue on the ramp, avoiding back up onto the, uh, near the freeway lanes. Does that help? Uh, a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> I think I understand kind of the purpose of the design. What I'm not sure I understand is, is this 2,000 vehicles a day or 20,000 vehicles a day? And I'm in particular interested in understanding how many vehicles are going to cross where people would ride, or, um, ride a bike or walk across where there are, you know, several crossings. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So... I don't know the number of vehicles a day off off my off the top of my head, but I can get that information to you. Um, it is also a very uh, uh, high level peak movement where a lot of hours throughout the day won't see the the volume of traffic that you see during the peak hours. So that is information that I can get you though in terms of how many vehicles are crossing that path per day um, at, at all legs of the of the roundabout. Would there be any controls on that or like rec rep rapid rectangular flashing beacons or any other thing to help people get across? Yes. So currently proposed, there are RRFBs, rapid rectangular flashing beacons at each crossing uh, for the shared use path of, of the lanes, both at this roundabout and at Lake Point Drive um, and at the roundabout to the west. Okay. Um, that helps mitigate uh, and notify the drivers of uh, cyclists or pedestrians who'd like to cross, um, thus giving the, the yield to uh, the drivers for those folks to cross the road. How far is that distance on the, where they're crossing four lanes, is that? Right here? Yeah, is that like 60 so, feet, so, 100 feet? So each lane is about, uh, 12 to 16 feet wide. So you're looking at probably with the refuge areas in between the lanes, you're probably looking at about 80 to 100 feet in there. Yep. Can you give us an equivalent road that we'd be familiar with? Like, is that like crossing Iowa or I don't know, uh, David, do you have anything on this? Like, is there something that comes to mind that people could say, oh yeah, that's gonna be like, Crossing it, Iowa. It, it would be very similar to crossing Iowa with the, with a large median in the middle. Yeah, it, okay. it uh, um, it's probably a little bit longer than that, but not much. Just be, just because of the kind of the curved nature of the roundabout. But yeah. Okay. And with those RFBs, the whole pathway would be um, signaled. You know, I mean, everyone would see that even if it's activated you know, on one side or the other. Yeah, you could connect the activation okay. to a single point. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So uh, I'm also kind of curious about the bypass lanes. 
I was under the impression that a roundabout is done instead of a traditional intersection to reduce the points of the potential points of conflict between both motor vehicles and other users. It seems like adding places where you're splitting and then remerging would actually increase the points of potential conflict. Is there kind of some trade-offs there where you got slow moving and fast moving traffic and multimodal users in the same spot? The other roundabouts that are in highway usage up on I-70 don't seem to ever back up, and they don't have any of those lanes. So, I'm, I mean, it, it might be a false equivalency. I don't know. But could you comment on that trade-off? Sure, yeah. And, and part of the effort with the bypass lanes is also to avoid, avoid multi-lane roundabouts, where you have two lanes circulating, which have been, are kind of known for significantly reducing the the safety of pedestrians uh, crossing um, or or folks, uh, slower moving folks going through the roundabout and conflicting with people trying to exit. So um, that's also part of the purpose here is to avoid a multi-lane roundabout. Uh, you could argue that we are introducing aspects of a multi-lane roundabout with the bypass lanes, um, but and that's a that's a balance, right? That's a balance of trying to accommodate um, traffic uh, and the volume of traffic that is expected in 2045. That's not something that you know is going to be here right when the uh, right when the uh, interchange is open and completed in construction. Uh, but it's a balance of trying to uh, accommodate the vehicles and reduce the amount of conflict points with with pedestrians and bicyclists. Um, the uh, you know, there's, there are merging points here um, that are in excess of what you would have with just a single lane roundabout without a bypass lane. That's, that's plain and simple, uh, but it is a balance of trying to accommodate the operational needs of the, of the roundabout. Okay. And those would be low severity. I mean, not with pedestrians. Right. With vehicles merging as mm -hmm. a side swipe or you know, coming together in the same direction. Yeah, and I'm. You're right, Jim. It does add conflict when we merge the bypass with somebody else that's coming from the inside lane. Uh, they eventually need a one lane on ramp. <clears throat> right. Chris was saying, and I don't know if you'd like me to repeat it, but. Um, Essentially, it's a different crash type. It's less severe. You don't have um, rear ends or uh, rear ending vehicles or, or um, those types of crashes, but you have more side swipe crashes, which are uh, typically less severe. Are you referring to the crashes that would happen during a queuing situation from the highway? Yes. Um, so I know you don't have, obviously, the exact numbers right now, but could you sort of comment on maybe the difference between what, what you see in the present in terms of not just numbers necessarily, but how bad is the queuing issue currently with the existing configuration? And what kind of percentage growth are you seeing in your model for increased traffic here? And I'm sorry, Jordan, I want to make sure I understand that because queuing back onto the highway is severe. It's rear ends. It's not... Uh... They're crashing, right. Yeah. I mean, the amount of time it happens. Like, is it, is it once a day only on Thanksgiving, or is it, like, all the time? Um, I don't drive this intersection particularly often, so. Well, today, existing today, there, there's not very many of those uh, uh, crashes at this location um, along the corridor. The main crash 
crashes associated with the existing configuration are due to the tightness of the um, of the existing mainline curve. So that's predominantly the the thing being corrected here is a flattening of that curve, decreasing the sharpness, um, and that's what's bringing everything closer in here to the north and the east. Um, so there isn't a, 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 a history of, cra of rear end crashes here, but um, and, it, and it's unlikely when the um, when the interchange opens up that you would have volumes that would you would be concerned with uh, with queuing um, upon opening or completing of construction. But as you look at traffic as it's grown to 2045, that's when you start to see the need for the bypass lane to help alleviate the queuing of the predicted traffic models. So that predicted traffic models, again, it's a tool that we are using. It's not always 100% accurate, but it is based on the best information that we have to date in terms of growth areas and where predicted growth is expected to occur. So in those model projections, what percentage would you say is, is the, the volume increasing? Like, is it doubling or is it up 10%? Because I, I don't know how closely you follow like planning in the city of Lawrence, but this particular area is not really slated for growth anytime soon. So it, I guess unless the model inputs are coming from other cities, that people are going to travel through here more often because I guess it's a little bit easier now. Um, I don't know if, that, if a huge increase would necessarily be justified given the growth patterns currently. I don't think it's quite doubling in growth, but I think it's, uh, I, I, I'm sorry to answer your question this way, it's more than the 10%, it's less than the doubling. And okay, that's what I figured. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, as, as traffic along the network grow um, and the, the freeway is utilized more often, um, you know, it, it, Clinton Parkway is set to experience growth in traffic volumes, um, which is, is what the city is planning for in terms of why it's a, a four lanes facility going but but you can kind of also tell the predicted uh, traffic volumes given the single lane in each direction on Clinton Parkway so as you look at US 59 that's a completely different situation of what's expected in terms of traffic volume growth there as compared to Clinton Parkway it's very you know a single lane in each direction can get you to that 2045 and beyond it's really accommodating traffic on and off of the freeway. Okay, so I guess knowing the various pieces of information that I'm kind of g gathering here, it seems like having the, geez, what are they called? B bypass lines. I keep wanting to call them slip lanes. So it seems with the bypass lines that we are sacrificing some potential, you know, low-level issues, but it, it could still happen, both mm -hmm. with vehicles and with people on foot and on bike. It's also a pretty much doubling I would say in the case of that one, if you were to go from above the large roundabout to south, you're crossing six lanes of traffic. So that's, you know, triple what you would have to do if there weren't bypass lanes. And then there's the issue of on the other side of the highway where there's a whole, you know, whole bunch of extra bypass lanes as well. So I'm kind of coming at this from a more holistic angle, which is that, you know, every additional lane mile or lane hundred foot what have you, is additional asphalt that we have to pay for, additional grading that has to happen, additional stormwater that has to be planned for, and concrete that you have to upkeep in 10 to 20 years. I don't know whose maintenance budget it's coming out of, but it seems like if we can trim stuff, given that, at least in, in Lawrence, there's always kind of a need for more infrastructure f uh, funding for maintenance. It seems like if we can trim them for stuff that we don't need for another 25 years, that might be good, especially if there's a safety benefit to be had for all users 
on top of that, um, it seems that these would be relatively easy to add in later. I mean, if you already have the right-of-way, this is all city or county or state-owned land. For example, the rightmost bypass lane coming from when you're going westbound on SLT, you take the first exit, um, that really tight hairpin one, that's directly within the right-of-way. That seems like that'd be a fairly easy add-on later if you had to. So, it, it, I mean, it almost seems like to me, so from one engineer to another, oftentimes on the treatment plant projects I work on, you know that in 25 years you're probably going to have a huge load of you know, additional contaminants coming in, but it may not be you know, at first, right? So you kind of want to be able to scale up over time to match the demand that you're getting. So I guess what I'm saying here is if there's any way to cut things down to match what the present need is that we can scale up later, I feel like that might save on CapEx and OpEx here and safety. So just putting that out there. Yeah, this is something we've done in the past on other projects where you, you build what's needed for a, not maybe what's needed right at the time of opening, but some agreed upon in, uh, interim year where you feel comfortable with the growth understanding that you have and what you have today and what eventually will be needed and you, and you can add on those things later. Um, you know, that's, that's not obviously the approach that was taken right now with what's included in the proposed, um, proposed improvements. Um, we t need to take a look at what exactly that interim year would be and what people feel comfortable with, with the, in working with Dave and his team and Chris uh, with KDOT on, on what would be an appropriate year to, um, to build to in the interim. Um, you know, in... And something with roundabouts, it does decrease overall maintenance usually because of uh, the open area and the lack, the major thing, lack of a signal. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a costly thing to maintain over time. Um, and uh, so that's another benefit of the roundabout in this particular case. Yeah, I'm, I, I should probably stay for the record. I'm totally on board with roundabouts. <laughs> just, I'm just not fully on board with the bypass lanes. Yeah. I have a question. Um, just in terms of the shared use path. Were other designs considered? As a cyclist, I see this, or pedestrian, either one, and as part of the Lawrence Loop, I see this as a nightmare, <laughs> you know, in terms of the number of lanes that have to be crossed, and, you know, particularly families and, you know, to go across that many lanes, even with a beacon, um, I see that as overly complicated and, um, and and just you know in terms of that distance you know looking at you know ADA you know so mobility limited people trying to cross that distance and that kind of thing so I was just wondering were other were other designs considered or can they be considered um, I mean we're getting rid of the at grade crossing at at um, you know Wakarusa basically uh, because of of the safety issues, and I don't understand exactly why we're introducing at grade and <laughs> six six lanes of crossing to to get across at grade uh, for this intersection. Well, we have the chance now to to not not create that situation that that then we have to go back and and fix you know yeah. because there are fatalities yeah. in that situation. That's an excellent question, and um, you know the main difference between Wakarusa um, and this particular location is Wakarusa. You're crossing the mainline lanes, and that's where that the safety um, concern really escalates with the uh, the speed at which people are traveling through Wakarusa. These sort of accidents that are occurring there. 
um, that that's that's a that's different than here with the slower speeds around the roundabout but uh, to your first part of your question about other alternatives being considered, um, you know, I think there are opportunities to to cross uh, Clinton without uh, crossing the roundabout at a grade-separated uh, location. Um, it's difficult in this area um, on the north side just because you don't have what we call or what I will call landing zones. You don't have a lot of room to get up over the interchange uh, and get back down um, without a very lengthy bridge or tunnel that also adds to maintenance in, in, in the long term. We have considered, uh, and, and actually Dave and his team haven't seen this yet, something that we've been uh, talking with KDOT about, and I can try and pull up a, a, a exhibit here, but I'll try and trace for this group's benefit. Um, but instead of taking the Lawrence Loop south along Clinton, keeping them on the west side of the interchange up 900 Road, crossing at some point and using this area in here to gain elevation or, or go under K10 at some crossing angle over here, and then utilizing the open area now after the relocation of the of K10 to land on the other side and reconnect in on the shared use path at East 902 Road. That's very preliminary, nothing that's been uh, discussed uh, with the city like like I mentioned, uh, but something that we were brainstorming in terms of how we could address and provide a, an, a grade separated um, crossing for to help increase safety. You would still probably provide all the crossing points that are being proposed down here, um, but for the through traffic of the Lawrence Loop that is coming around the spillway and going continuing to go north, that would be an option. Of course, that comes with additional costs, additional maintenance, and so that's something that would have to be balanced against. Yeah, because I see, you know, people who are cycling that are coming like across the dam, something like that, that those are more experienced cyclists and maybe could navigate something like this. But in terms of the continuation of the loop, you know, that's where I, you know, I really would like to see something simple and grade separated to, to make sure that that is safe for all, for all users in that case because I think it's going, it's going to stop people from continuing on and they'll just go one way or the other but not, not go through that. Because even though the, the, the speeds are lower, uh, there's still a lot of traffic. You know, I mean, there's a lot of traffic now getting across, um, you know, to coming up from the, from the loop and getting across Clinton Parkway to get on the other side. Mm -hmm. That's because you've got traffic coming from the lake and you know you've got people turning in all directions and right. it's really hard to get across even with that volume of traffic so if you're talking about significant increases over time I think that's only going to be exacerbated yeah it's again it's a it's a balance of, of, of economics of impacts and and you know this is something that has been implemented uh, across the country that is a very acceptable acceptable solution um, in terms of having proof of oper operationability operability excuse me um, and and uh, because of the low speeds um, um, 
reducing or not having the safety concerns that come along with it. But there's always something that could be done more, uh, like you're talking about, and that, that would be um, either rerouting the Lawrence Loop to a different location, uh, also taking up to Bob Bob Billings and crossing there would be another option, or providing some sort of other uh, grade-separated crossing. So speaking of the additional funds that it would take to create a grade-separated crossing, um, I wanted to kind of zoom out to the larger picture here of the matching funds that the city of Lawrence and the Douglas County put forth towards the SLT expansion. So I forget exactly how much it was. I, I always forget this number. But at some point, the city of Lawrence decided to punt on the Wakarusa extension, which was originally part of the kind of in-kind co contribution. And I forget how many millions it was that we were going to be chipping in for that. But since the money is still going to KDOT at some point, I mean, it's still a part of the match. It's just not building a road anymore. Is there a way that that money could maybe be directed towards some kind of incremental improvement to create grade-separated crossings for the loop? Um, is that a possibility, or is it now just earmarked just as a cash match and that's it? I think that's you know that's an ongoing conversation with uh, uh, with KDOT, uh, Calvin Reed, the director of engineering, and and Chris Norton and his team, and and also um, you know, City Lawrence manager and uh, Craig and and Dave and his team that have been talking about options. Um, I think that's been that's something that would have to be discussed with KDOT. I don't know, Chris, if you'd like to chime in on that. Hey, Norton, can you get up on speed oh. on the mic? <laughs> Sorry, Matt Messina is the KDOT. It's a new division. Multimodal. Lots of initials, but Matt is... Um, we're, we've reached out to him and seeing, depending on the annual funds they get, which is specific to bike pad, multimodal, uh, other items as well, but multimodal, which includes a lot of things, to help out on things like this instead of project dollars. Now, it's still state dollars or federal dollars, but it's a different pot, and sometimes in government that's a big thing. So I think we'll continue to work with the city on the potential for this grade separated crossing probably a box uh, like a 12 span by 10 high uh, at this location but we are working with Matthew and I, I don't want to run it so that's coming up <laughs> on another potential project uh, that would would be nice to get incorporated into the SLT depending on how we can fund it so sounds good sounds like things are happening so <laughs> I'll be curious to see where that Progresses, but glad to hear that there is a potential movement on that. So, yeah. Cool. Everyone good with Clinton Parkway? I had a couple more. Sure. Um, so, this is a little bit outside of our purview, I know. But just out of curiosity, what's the deal with landscaping and huge void spaces? Why is it always mowed? Why can't you just let it grow like they do in New Jersey or Maryland or Pennsylvania? 
So we are uh, working with Dave and his team and others with Park and Rec on uh, working through a conceptual landscaping plan for uh, each arterial along uh, that's being impacted by the SLT, including Clinton Parkway, Wakarusa, and um, Iowa and US 59. We're not uh, quite to a point yet that that's been kind of defined and what's moving forward. Uh, so, um, you know, there's still opportunities for, for input there, but it's uh, so noted in what you're talking about. Um, but it is something that we're working through with city staff and trying to understand what their preferences are and, and, and understanding costs associated with those additional improvements and, and how that works with the coordination with KDOT um, and on KDOT's right away. So. I mean, on, in terms of cost, I mean, if you just let it grow, it'd start, you know, as red cedar and would eventually just succeed into something, and then you wouldn't have to mow it anymore. It seems like it would cost less. Right, and yeah. I know that's a discussion with KDOT Maintenance. They don't like to mow. Yeah. Uh, I do know we frequent, and I'm a designer, not a maintenance guy. I do know that up near the shoulder and the roadway, they mow. Right. And then there's places like deep in an interchange where you've got a deep pocket there that's mm. a ditch down 15 20 feet that they let grow they mow it once a year though uh which doesn't allow trees to grow mm. and they may want not they may not want trees to grow but uh i think they're on board with that but um <laughs> i do know they mow a lot of k10 once a year but that's typically well away from the road okay Good to hear that that might be changing at some some stage. Okay. Um, let's see what else I had. North of 1415 Road. So you briefly touched on this one. On the far upper left side here, far northwest, you got that road that follows the kind of dead end to the trailer lot. Currently, that just ends and becomes like a dirt road into some uh, farm fields. It looks like here it's actually becoming its own thing. Where does the north end of that eventually hit? So you're talking about right here? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that uh, East 900 road is uh, planned uh, minor arterial. So the, the growth plan in the future is that would continue on to the west. Uh, but going north um, is uh, East 875 road, and that would connect 900 all the way up to 1500 road, Bob Billings. That's the west side of Bob Billings. Okay. Um, I'm trying to figure out where East 875 road is exactly. It's, it doesn't exist. Doesn't there exist. <laughs> Brand new road. Okay. Yeah. So, in that case, in this particular plan, the orange line, the new road is going all the way up to a road that doesn't exist and it's just going to sit there, right? Yes. Yeah, so the, is the, it going to connect to anything or not really? No, no. This will connect from East 900 Road. I, I, sh I should have brought a plot of this as well, but this will connect from East 900 Road to North 1500 Road. Okay. So this is in the project mostly because of a uh, maintenance of traffic route during construction. On the west side, as you uh, all know, there's not a lot of local infrastructure to get people to where they need to go. So when we are, uh, when KDOT is working through and constructing uh, the new SLT, this will at serve as a temporary route for folks to get to the park okay. um, from the north and south. Okay. That makes sense. And I just wasn't sure, you know, because it's off the screen, so. And it will be a collector. Collector. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, East 900 Road that you can see on the screen, that's part of the local participation of the cost share was upgrading that to put curb and gutters, and we get the shared use path on there originally. That, you know, KDOT was building it as a 
maintenance of traffic roads. So okay. just to get that in place uh, for future developments can be important because like uh, Jordan said, that's kind of the extension of Clinton Parkway north and then to the west. It kind of turns to the west in our transportation plan. Um, and I, th I think there actually is an area plan in development for this area, right? Is that where the new tenants to homeowners block is going to be? Up on the the, uh, the west side of the Bob Billings interchange? I want to say uh, it's around there. There's an area um, on the southeast of K10 and Bob Billings. Oh, it's southeast. Okay. Um, but as far as there's also an area plan that um, planning and developments undertaking the west west of K10 area plan that okay. goes as far south as this interchange, but then goes north up to 6th Street. And uh, so that's currently being updated. Okay. Thanks for the clarification. Okay. And the final thing was, I think, um, the rationale for wide medians um, and the part that kind of crosses the valley of the highway. It seems like everything else is relatively close together. Is there a need to have it so wide? Um, right here? Yeah. So one of the... One of the main reasons it's wide right here is because of the clear zone of the piers. Mm -hmm. So we're, okay. we're avoiding uh, um, vertical barriers of sorts by, sorts by having the wider median. The other thing, because this is a single lane, um, you know, if you have an abandoned car stuck in that lane, you, have, uh, you need an ability to pass them. And so on the inside are actually laid down curbs that you are easily mountable to bypass a, a potential stalled vehicle in that single lane. So is it like a landscape median almost? Like is there kind of little curb bump ups and then you could drive in it or? So we are talking through some options of just having grass there or there could be some um, um, paver area that you could uh, it would be for landscaping purposes it wouldn't be to sustain traffic or anything like that but uh, the city uh, is proposing that as it avoids um, debris getting onto the road so that's something that we're looking at as an option okay cool this is probably a question that could be at the at the end but just in terms of you know looking at these options will Will we be able to see another iteration of this before? I mean, what are the opportunities for additional comment from us and as well as from the public? So there will be additional public meetings for the entire project as we move forward, especially as uh, right-of-way acquisition gets underway and, and those types of things that are more uh, formalized or, or and set are, are communicated. Um, and then there will be additional public meetings as we get, as we get closer to construction. Um, as Chris, as Chris is, I hope I'm not speaking for you, Chris, but we're always open to having a discussion here and presenting to the board an update. Um, I know we've kind of done a year cadence right now. If it needs to be more often than that, we're certainly open to coming back for uh, once we've had some uh, meaningful progress on the on the design. Okay, great, thank you. I've got. Sorry to bring us back to the um, roundabout and crossing the bypass lane, but is there a worry? You said that potentially would be a signalized crossing for pedestrians and bikers. Would that back up traffic on the freeway if they're crossing there? Because it's uh, so the signalized portion of that is it's a rapid, uh, rectangular rapid flashing beacon, so it's only actuated by a pedestrian crossing. So there will be unsignalized for the majority of the time. Now, um, our, our Prediction is that the 
pedestrian and, and the queuing uh, doesn't uh, necessarily peak at the same time. So there is not a concern at, of that at this time, but that is something to monitor, of course, that if you do see uh, consistent actuation of the flashing beacon, that uh, that could be a concern, but not, not at this time. That's not a concern. Does anybody else have any other questions? Or shall we move on to uh, the, the iOS reading? Or sorry. Walk we can do Iowa. We can do whatever order you'd like. That's okay. Let's go in order. I think and, you, the next and if you want, you could get public comment on each one yeah. as we go to, if that would, mm. that's yeah. up to you. This one, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Sounds good. For any public comment people out there, I guess you'd be online. Um, if you would like to speak to the Clinton Parkway interchange, then you've got three minutes. Chris, looks like you're up first. Commissioner Kuzmiak and other members of the Multimodal Transportation Commission. I am Chris Tilden. Uh, I live on the west side of town uh, near Bob Billings and Wakarusa. I uh, utilize that section of the loop uh, quite frequently. Um, you know, I see, I see uh, pedestrian, bike, and car traffic, you know, at, at all of these crossings. Um, on almost a daily basis, uh, even queuing of pedestrians and cyclists at, at some places, um, particularly Wakarusa, which I know we'll talk about next. So I just want to um, say that I, I, I appreciate the discussion. I, I, I like the idea of trying to pursue um, crossings other than at grade. Um, yeah, I think when we discuss the, the Wakarusa, I really appreciate all that Chris uh, and the project team have done to look at creative approaches and I think have come light years there. Um, you know, I also appreciate the fact that the that staff and city commission, you know, had the, the I think, foresight to recognize that the crossing of uh, the loop at Iowa near 31st was of such um, you know length um, and potential danger, even though there are traffic lights there which stop vehicular traffic, there still was a decision made to fund uh, a crossing that is not at grade. So I, I think we all agree that there are opportunities. I am intrigued by the idea of trying to um, continue the shared use path along East 900 road and potentially using Bob Billings uh, as a mechanism to uh, create bike and pedestrian facilities that might alleviate you know the need to build an additional um, an additional crossing over K10 underpass overpass whatever might be so um, I look forward to the discussion appreciate uh, the presentation by KDOT, I'm real excited to hear that Matt Messina um, is in a new position and will be involved in discussing multimodal options. I think that uh, creates a great opportunity for us as well. So thanks to Chris, the project team, um, and all of you for the discussion. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. Is there anybody else on online who wishes to comment? Okay, let's go on the Walker Risa then when you're ready. 
Okay, so slight change in perspective here. So north is to the left. So this is Clinton Parkway over on the left side of the screen. Um, K10 is coming diagonal across here um, as the commissioner. Sorry. As the commissioner noted earlier um, today, you, you cross at grade with. Wakarusa and K10 and 27th Street come together and you cross the main line and uh, via signal and, and get over to the park and the uh, Rotary Arboretum. Um, what's being proposed um, currently, and I'll start at the north end and come back south. Um, there are improvements, uh, different city uh, project uh, to the north of Clinton Parkway that are not shown on this map. That is a separate project, not to uh, not uh, completed as part of the SLT, but we are coordinating with that project team. Um, from the north, going south, there is a shared use path along the east side of Wakarusa. There is a sidewalk along the west side that continues down all the way to the Stoneback neighborhood. That sidewalk accessibility is not there today. Uh, that would be a new, um, new uh, ac access point. The shared use path uh, then goes along um, bus turnout lanes. So this is designed to accommodate up to two buses stacked side by side. Uh, the goal is there's a bus stop there today. Uh, the goal is to allow for that bus stop and expansion of that bus stop as a potential staging area in the future um, and get those buses out of the through lane so that um, through traffic can continue to uh, go northbound on on Wakarusa. Continuing south, the shared use path uh, continues on the west, or excuse me, the east side. Um, it comes to a decision point where you can split and go further east uh, down uh, to 27th Street. Uh, 27th Street continues on to the east. Um, it also uh, comes north of 20 on the north side of 27th street meets up with the extension of the wakarusa um, eastern shared use path at the intersection of wakarusa drive and 27th street which is now a through street i'll talk about in a minute how this all interacts with k10 um, but that uh, crossing point is at a signalized intersection at wakarusa and 27th street Shared use paths continues along the north side of 27th Street and connects into the trails on the on the west side. Uh, the shared use path uh, continues on the west side of Wakarusa down to a um, potential future southern entrance uh, to the park. Um, that's something that we're coordinating with the city and, and Parks and Rec. Um, we are uh, constructing uh, this piece and. And as another aside here for everyone's understand, understanding as we stage construction through here, uh, there actually will be a connection made to the park to alleviate um, um, and provide access uh, throughout construction on the south side. Um, there is a stub out for a potential uh, expansion of Wakarusa down to the south in the future. And that shared use path would continue uh, as a separate shared use path, or it's also been contemplated to merge with the lanes and and uh, go on street. But that's outside of the purview of this of this project. 
So, K10, the good news is that everything, all the shared use paths are under K10. So K10 is over Wakarusa, over 27th Street. So there is no at grade with K10 anywhere uh, with this configuration. Uh, that's that's the, the crucial difference from what's out there today. Um, so these are these two longer bridges are K10 westbound and K10 eastbound. Because of the through nature of 27th Street and how the configuration works today with the intersection of the ramps on the north side, there is a third bridge that is different than perhaps what you've seen in the past where westbound K10 exit goes over 27th Street into a signalized intersection with Wakarusa. So that is a crossing point of the shared use path. That is a signal. And then the other crossing point is a signalized intersection as well. We're working again with the city on kind of what's happening in this area and here. Uh, it's kind of a, a bit of a uh, unique circumstance with the bridges over and kind of this open area between, two, between a ramp and two uh, city streets. So this is a sidewalk on the south side of 27th Street, shared use path on the north side. You have the opportunity uh, to go uh, to, over to Wakarusa to go north up to Clinton, or you can continue uh, to the west and cross Wakarusa uh, into the park. But all of this is under the ramp bridge, under the mainline bridges. Are there any questions on this proposed improvement? I had a question that's going to sound like a broken record, but the bypass lanes on the southern roundabout, I see that there's a bypass lane going southbound to take a right into an open field. Which So you said there was going to be some kind of road connection that's not shown here. Is that right? So in coordination with the city, and Dave, you might be able to speak to this a little bit more, but there's, a, uh, there's been consistently planned a, another access point uh, for a number of reasons, including emergency uh, egress and ingress uh, for the park. Um, but ha having a southern connection point, it, it's going to be uh, blocked off at the end of the SLT uh, pending you know, a future connection uh, whenever it is, is ready to be accessible to the park. So this... Um, I don't know, Dave, do you want to add anything on that? I, I don't. Yeah, that's the Walkers extension project. Mm. And so if that doesn't move that's forward, nice. then that doesn't that connection doesn't happen. But it may move forward at some point in the future and may be needed, and the county may you should, do the project. You're talking about the one on the right side going south, right? Correct. Yeah. So yeah. The, is, is that what you're about the one on the west side going oh, into the park? to the park. Yeah. Yeah. That, that will be tied in with this project so it's not completely shown on there and i think if you zoomed in on it a little there's a road there a little further to the north but we yeah. had to, we had to slide it a little further to the south because of the uh, turf project there okay <clears throat> so um, it needs to be tweaked a little but um, it will tie into the into the park in the parking lot so is this another case where 
concerns over traffic volumes in the future led to putting in of bypass lanes now? Because it looks like if things were to queue on that particular turn, they would just be on a surface road. It's not even on the highway, right? So, so uh, good observation. This is not an operational uh, uh, use of a bypass lane. So this was something that uh, originally it was, um, it was a single lane um, that was was uh, into the roundabout and out of the roundabout. So. So you're saying it's not operational. I'm not sure I'm following. Does that mean that nobody's going to use it, or what does that mean? People will still use it to get to the park. I think uh, the main concern was on events that this would be a free flow movement into the park, um, but it's it's not a uh, a normal um, a normal operational uh, need for that uh, bypass lane. Okay. The one on the other side is this one in particular uh, with the loop ramp. Um, this one is a, a back of queue uh, site distance concern where yeah. allowing folks to continue to go north, you can alleviate that back of queue, providing enough uh, anticipation and decision distance to see the back of queue and make an appropriate response. Right. Yes, yeah, so I don't really have a problem with that one. It's a pretty long merge time at a split time, so it seems like there's not really a lot of additional conflicts there, but it does seem like the one going into the youth sports complex. I mean, in terms of backups and high volumes, a lot of that is going to happen right after the roundabout where people are going to try to find a parking space and be backing out. So, like, if there's going to be backups, they're going to happen through the bypass lane anyway, probably, if everybody's using that entrance. So, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's not a huge savings, but it seems like that could probably be trimmed, you know? It's, it's you know couple hundred feet of road that will get used maybe once every couple months. I don't know. Just throwing it out there. Um, on the plus side, at least there aren't any crossings, but if that Wakarusa Road does get built, you're probably going to want a crossing right there. So having three lanes instead of two is going to be just a little bit less convenient for uh, cyclists using that road. Yeah. Otherwise, I really like the redesign. I think it's significantly more compact and it's convoluted, but it makes sense, you know? Like, if you're driving and following the signs, it all makes sense. So, yeah, definitely in favor still. All right, any other questions on Walker Reset? I have a question. Okay. may seem not related to transportation, and it may not be. Um, can you tell me uh, the along the Walker there... What is happening? Are those like this? Or is that? Are you talking about like th a, this thing right here? Yes. Okay, so uh, that's what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. So, um, good question. Uh, it's not uh, readily apparent. This is West Branch Yankee Tank Creek that's coming through here. Uh, the, oh, right. yeah. the Clinton Lake is over. Uh, here off the screen, bottom of the screen. Um, so there's there's a, a significant drainage component to what's happening with the SLT. Uh, two main things. One, you can see it on the bottom of the screen here is called the diversion channel. So typically what happens in a major rain event today is a lot of the area south of the uh, SLT floods. Um, in order for uh, this uh, interchange uh, to work, that flooding needed to be 
uh, resolved. And so a portion of that water is tying into the spillway and being diverted to the Wakarusa River. So that is a heavy effort uh, that we've been coordinating with the Corps of Engineers for the last uh, seven, eight years in terms of what, what those improvements look like. Another important aspect of that solution is to um, regrade uh, West Branch Yankee Tank Creek. So that's what is this grading through here. This is uh, what we would call bench benching grading. So very like you have a channel basically and you're grading up and depending on where you're at in the channel, you have different treatments of rock uh, to help um, to help uh, um, uh, oh, the word uh, to help armor the channel basically to help uh, avoid um, it uh, weakening and washing away. Uh, so there's an, uh, a crossing here of West Branch Yankee Tank uh, Creek in Wakarusa that is a, a reinforced box culvert there. And then there's an existing crossing of West Branch Yankee Tank Creek with K10 that we are extending. Um, this is actually an instance where this is a four, uh, four cell opening, so it has four openings. Uh, that KDOT is reducing to a three cell opening to help um, with uh, hydraulic um, design. Are you talking um, about the, the one under the... One under the main, un, under K10. Okay. Yep, so it's four openings today and it's going to a three opening um, and that's for better hydrologic design, uh, but also um, because of the diversion channel, um, some of that flow is being uh, diverted elsewhere that's reaching there today. So it looks like there's already a diversion channel topographically. Are you just lining it with <coughs> concrete as part of this project? I see it's outlined in purple Lines. Oh, this that that's a temporary construction easement. Um, so that's all core property. So that's uh, not property that will be acquired. It will uh, the core will uh, continue to own that property, and then KDOT and the core and the city will all come to agreements on how to maintain that. So, are there any improvements happening there then? Or yes, that is that is not in existence today. Okay. Yeah. It looks like there is a spillway of some sort. It's Correct. sort of created like a grass line ditch essentially, but I don't know, do you need a lower manning coefficient? Is that what's going on here? I mean, sorry, I know this is way outside of purview. I just didn't realize that was even a part of the project. So, so the spillway exists and it, and it will continue to exist. This is, this, is not, uh, this is not diverting the spillway. This is tying in um, and carrying a certain amount of the flow to directly to the Wakarusa River. Everything ultimately gets to the Wakarusa River today. It's just uh, helping to uh, capture that flow before it floods um, a number of the fields there um, and helping to allow for an interchange to be constructed there um, where it currently floods. So if it did flood, then you would be unable to use parts of what are in the proposed plans? Is that kind of the issue? Right. So okay. if, you, if you didn't do the diversion channel and you didn't do some uh, these improvements along West Branch Yankee Tank Creek, this roundabout would often be underwater. I see. Okay. That makes more sense now. Okay. Any more questions on this interchange? Uh I'm not an engineer, but since I've seen this in many places and I'm kind of a pie in the sky thinker, um, 
is there ever consideration or would it even be possible to do like a uh, underpass crossing there using those box culverts for bicyclists and pedestrians? That would have to come with the understanding that, um, you know, tip, so water is, water is sitting in that creek today. Right. So you, you could expand it at a different elevation to cross it, um, but, in, in, but in major rain events, um, those cells of the box are, are full and flowing with water. Right. So, so go ahead. Uh, I, I come from this from a point of view. I lived in Boulder, Colorado. It's a base of four canyons, and box culverts are often used for bike and pedestrian underpasses so you have a bike path and then you have a lower a lower one yeah. so i just you you could yeah you could you'd have to look at the the flood elevations and make sure that there is an opportunity for that to stay dry or a mechanism to close that path if it can't right so like there where sometimes they're not passable no. but yeah 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 so <clears throat> a concern I have and I'd like you to address, tell me if I'm just off on this, but Wakarusa is primarily, you know, two lanes of traffic both ways. And <clears throat> as I kind of look at this, the space that's south of Clinton Parkway, you know, currently it's just two lanes and one in each direction. And it really gets backed up significantly. And it looks like there's, it's wider in this proposal, it's a little bit wider um, as it goes further south. And then it gets really wide, maybe even wider than Wakarusa is now. And I'm just curious, like, how, how does the volume of traffic get, is it not associated with how wide the road is? I mean. Are you expecting more people to be on it further south this goes? Or I just imagine that most people would be going closer to the city, and so the volume would be higher um, in the segment between Clinton Parkway and, you know, the highway. So what am I, what am I missing here? Most of the traffic, it's a great question. Most of the, well, I'll come back and hit the first part of your question because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of different parts to, to what you're talking about. So most of the traffic actually comes from elsewhere along the freeway. So that's why you see most of the lanes in, and uh, capacity in between the two terminals. Okay. So as you go north, you're right, there are existing congestions issues, issues today. Um, this is widened from a single lane in each direction to one through lane in each direction with a shared turn lane. So depending on where you're at, um, it, it alleviates turning movements to get them out of the through lane so through traffic can continue to flow while uh, those turning, uh, predominantly left turns, are uh, in, the shared, in the shared turn lane. So that's all the way up as you go here. As you approach the intersection with Clinton Parkway, another lane opens. 
Um, and this is something that we're working with the city on um, in the project to the north of how this uh, coordinates with the improvements going north. Uh, but right now, how this is contemplated is it actually opens up a, an additional through lane and the main reason for this and why it's not a right turn only lane is for for peak times you really need the two lanes that have the ability to go north to reduce your signal phasing so that you can clear the queue and get them on the north side of the signal um, and, and reduce the time that you have to show green for that particular movement to help balance the signal phasings for the rest of the intersection. So a right actually a right a dedicated right turn lane would not do as much for you because your cue for the through movement would continue to line up past the opening of the right turn lane mm -hmm. um, and that's why right now it's it's uh, shown as two lanes that can go through to the north and there are two northbound through lanes as part of the uh, other city project as it's currently proposed that makes a lot of sense the going south yes it's still just the one lane that's still just the one lane going south uh we did uh introduce a right turn lane here after um kind of today there's a lane that kind of uh, merges in right south of the intersection so again most of your traffic is being generated between um between the terminals but as you get as you approach uh, the ramps you start to see that second lane open up and add capacity throughout Wakarusa. This, I think this roundabout on the south side it's just concerning to me because I feel like we would not imagine people going on the shared use path they would be crossing this at some point if this road continues south and <clears throat> you've got a <clears throat> crossing and looks like a sidewalk on the south end of this roundabout but nothing <clears throat> on this extension that goes into the field on the west side yeah we have yes Oh, I'm sorry. That Go just ahead. feels like later we're going to have to build another crossing. So, yeah, and and that is something that we have broached a little bit uh, with the city and the city and parks. And I think there is a conversation that we need to continue to have. There's been talk about a a mid block after you get uh, west of the roundabout. Do you have a crossing somewhere in here after lane merges in um, to reduce the number of lanes you're you're crossing? Um, an important part of this design is it was kept on the west side away from the ramp lanes, you know, again, mm -hmm. uh, reducing uh, the number of um, crossing points that you absolutely had to have. So um, that is something that needs to be coordinated on what sort of crossing this looks like in the future. Well, I, I kind of I, I go back and forth on this idea, like, should that crossing be further to the west, but at that point you have two lanes of traffic um, going west. When they cross where that um, little median is, yep, yeah. it provides a little refuge, I guess, which seems then similar to what you're doing back at uh, the previous intersection we talked about. So where 
where's the best place for people to cross when there's only one lane of traffic they have to look at feels safer in my mind like you you're know. you're absolutely correct that the fewer lanes you have to cross the safer it is well the fewer um it could look like you're going to have to cross three lanes if you go you know closer to the roundabout but at least you're one at a time mm-hmm. whereas if you're further away from the roundabout now you got two lanes of traffic. Who knows who's deciding to switch lanes in the middle of all that or what car is blocking the other car from the other lane. So I guess I'd... It, it seems like a mid-block would be good, but I also feel like that's harder for pedestrians, maybe. It, um, it also is usually at a more unexpected location. You know, people yeah. usually expect crossings at at an intersection whatever that intersection looks like. i mean if the median was extended to keep cars from crossing over then i suppose that's maybe best of both worlds i don't know yeah. or if we could eliminate the bypass lane then you only have two lanes to cross that would be maybe even better i'm not sure i understand the bypass lane there i think i understand now a little better why there's so many lanes here though because it's the traffic coming off the highway that's adding in to the overall volume okay yeah does anybody else have any other questions before we move to public comment for the walker interchange all right is there anybody in the call who would like to publicly comment on this particular interchange All right, let's go on to uh, US 59 Iowa Street interchange. Okay, I'm going to change perspective on you one more time. <laughs> Back to normal, right? <laughs> or is it upside down? <laughs> north to south. I keep you guys guessing. Okay, so north is now up at the top of the screen. All right. K10 is going across from left to right. Okay. US 59 Iowa is, of course, going up and down on the screen. So I think my first question here is, has anything changed since the last time we saw this about 12 months ago? Um, Pretty much the same. The, there's a very couple minor changes. So this up here hasn't really changed outside of some connections back to the existing, uh, reestablishing connections that are out there today um, to the areas of development. Um, and then uh, right now, I think previously we showed a crossing um, there really isn't anything to cross to down here to the south, so right now it's just kind of a, a diversion into here. At least they're not crossing a street where they can't get back to where they need to be, especially for uh, visually impaired or or, some, or uh, folks with other disabilities. Um, probably the biggest thing that's the ch- that's changed since you've last seen this graphic, it, it's focused on the north side of... Uh, the westbound exit, uh, westbound entrance ramp of K-10 with US-59 Iowa Street. Chris Norton was alluding to it earlier where there's um, discussions uh, with others at KDOT um, and the city on, on is there an opportunity to uh, share in cost of upgrading this from an at-grade intersection uh, crossing of the Lawrence Loop to a grade separated. And so... Um, We've been uh, working on developing concepts. We we had a few concepts that we focused in on a couple. Uh, One is a a bridge over 
and one is a tunnel under. So the tunnel under is an eight-foot tunnel, not preferred. Uh, the preferred height is 10 feet uh, for a pedestrian tunnel, a bike tunnel. Uh, the reason for the eight-foot proposal is because of how flat it is out here today. It's very difficult to drain that tunnel as you go down and the two feet. Additional two feet go into a 10-foot tunnel basically uh, gets you into having a pump that uh, you would have to pump the, pump the water out of the out of the tunnel, given the elevations um, that we're working with. Could you explain the rationale for the 10-foot standard tunnel? I mean, we are known for our basketball team, but they don't all walk down there. On a bike. <laughs> on a bike. People, you know, people standing up on a bike or something like that, it okay. poses a safety. Uh, eight foot is acceptable, okay. um, uh, but the preferred uh, in the, in the um, Ashto bike guidance is, is 10. Okay. Well, as long as we can get away with eight, you know, as, it would it would be acceptable. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yep. I wouldn't have a problem with it with my height, but that's a you know. <laughs> so the last we heard on this crossing was that I think it had been brought up to KDOT and it was not originally accepted as a cost share project. So it sounds like those talks have been kind of evolving towards maybe. Is that correct? Yeah, and Chris can elaborate on this as he was as he was mentioning. This is something uh, with a different bureau, different. Uh, uh, set of funds that uh, yeah. been working to identify. I, I would say not in the sense of it's part of the local match of the city. Okay. So, again, government, different pots of money mean different <clears throat> things to different people. <laughs> it's important, I guess. So, but we're working with the division of multimodal, and it is a longer name than that, Matt Messina and uh, Jenny Kramer. Matt's the division director. Um, and so, you know, it was a good first talk. Uh, we'll see. Uh, and we're keeping the city engaged on that, and um, we'll see where it goes. Um, I'm kind of curious as to the rationale as to why it was denied as a match project in the first place, since removing conflicts from multimodal pedestrians and bicyclists would actually be a good thing for users exiting and entering the highway because you would have less things to worry about you know safety wise it, w it was denied as what um it was initially denied as a match project is what i understand oh like a like a cost share yeah like the walker roost extension or the farmer's turnpike improvements yeah i'm not sure okay i'm not sure i wasn't involved in that but um not sure okay that sounds like it's moving forward in some way perhaps through that other division okay thanks so, oh, I might, uh, but, sorry, right before you, we ask your question, I didn't mention, um, you know, there are retaining walls associated with either option, whether it be cut down into the ground to get down to uh, the bottom of the box going under the road or uh, up to the bridge that's going over the road. So something else that you just um, try to visualize, uh, we're working on some um, documents that we could provide and, and hopefully share uh, to the public at a later date. Um, but uh, I, I apologize for interrupting you, but I wanted to make sure that I made that point. No, I, I appreciate you finishing that. I, what I wanted to um, just make a note of is where the, I assume that's the shared use path that goes down south. Yes. And then it kind of just makes a turn and ends. Mm -hmm. um, the Lawrence Loop uh, isn't too far from that. Also, I think it's just over at 
1400 road mm -hmm. and <clears throat> I maybe this is just outside the scope but it feels like having that thing just end right there <laughs> feels like it's just missing something obvious I don't know if that's something that um, is too far from the project or it's not in the scope but having that shared use path go along 1250 road and then somehow cross over to connect to the Lawrence Loop seems like this might be a good time to try to add that into it. I don't know if that's probably more of David's base than KDOT's, but um, just feels like an opportunity that we should just consider. Yeah, I think in, in the long term, um, if that uh, parcel develops in the future, 1250 Road would be relocated to okay. the south. Um, when there were some discussions about rezoning that years ago um, and a concept shown it was shown to kind of go through that property and not be uh, along the along the ramp so that would be um, you know something we would hold to to the future for development but definitely would want to at that time improve the road to city standards and, and make that connection okay <clears throat> thanks Do you want to keep going or? Nope. I'm all done with this one. Yeah, they're, uh, um, I mean, I can, I didn't really touch on it, but there's a shared use path on the east side of the road, uh, 10 foot shared use path and connections on the north side. Um, there are some, you know, outside of a, a grade separated crossing, we have been working with the city on uh, some other mitigation me measures, of course. Uh, uh, this will be signalized, so you will have a, a signal. Um, that you can actuate. Um, other discussion topics that we've been having include, you know, allowing one of the main conflict points that exists today are right turners who are stopped and they're yielding. They're making that right turn and hitting pedestrians or bicyclists is a lot is uh, is uh, uh, putting up signs that prohibit right turns on red. Uh, that's that's an option. Um, Another option that, that's been discussed at a high level is a pedestrian um, phase, an, an only pedestrian phase that, has, that does have significant impacts on the operations of the intersection, uh, but something that is an option. Do you find that no right turn on red signs are largely effective? It is something that is regulatory, so you can monitor and uh, and regulate that, uh, which is different than what's what's there today. Um, it depends on the situation. Um, you know, they are highly effective if you if you actually can't see what traffic is 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 doing as it's coming towards you. Um, so. That's not the case here. The case here in utilizing the right, no right turn on reds is to prohibit a conflict with pedestrians and bicyclists. So that's something that might need to be regulated for a few weeks uh, in partnership with local law enforcement, um, but uh, it could be effective if used appropriately. Okay. Yeah, my, my experience at that intersection is that's been the most dangerous part of it. You know, the, you get the light and, mm -hmm. you know, wait for the yeah. cars to to stop but you're you have traffic behind you and you can't really see and the right turn on red is the where you feel the most vulnerable in yes. that case so yeah. so the the 
the path on the east side, then crossing the exit ramp, that would you were that's proposed as a, at grade then, or it is at grade as well, signal controlled. Okay. That crossing does not exist today. Right. Yeah. 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 It's a good addition. I had another comment that could probably be filed under the uh, potentially misguided attempts at cost cutting. Um, there are two left turn lanes that are extending north under the new uh, overpass. They seem to be going for quite a long time, considering I, I can't imagine traffic coming from Ottawa is that heavy or people you know, turning around and getting back on the highway is heavy. I, I don't know who else will be using those left turn lanes other than the folks coming from south of the county. And since there's only a single left turn lane going south in the opposite direction, from the actual city. It seems kind of out of balance considering, you know, who's coming from where. Yeah, so good question. So there, there is a lot of traffic uh, projected to grow. Um, and one of the main uh, movements utilized uh, is the um, north to left. Um, so northbound US 59 to turn left onto westbound K10. And so in the peak hour, again, there's different times of the day that you're designing for, but during the peak hour, you try to alleviate and allow for the through movements um, and try to provide enough storage length to accommodate the max 95th percentile queue. So of all the runs, you try to accommodate the 95th percentile queue, and that's the storage that you provide. So the 95th percentile queue falls right around here. Uh, south of the bridge uh, because of that major movement. So there might be a little bit of trimming that you could do uh, to to eliminate the, the left turn lanes, but it is needed in the peak hour to allow for those left turners to, to queue up, but still allow uh, the through movements to also queue up at the signal. But it's again, it's a balance of those signal timings on how those signals are being, what green phase they're getting to clear the queues at each leg of the intersection. On the southbound side, the main difference is that this is going into a future development, not the ramps. That's a right turn, right turns have uh, a greater uh, capacity of vehicles uh, because you have the opportunity to turn right on a yield condition. Um, there is an accommodation for a future left turn here if this area were to develop. Um, that's what's marked out here with the with the crosshatch. Uh, so again, there is expected if a development does occur in this quadrant, the traffic projections do warrant a second left turn lane. Okay, so. I guess getting back to the ones that are going north, you were saying the 95 percentile Q goes all the way down there. Is that with a single turn lane or with two it actually goes all the way down Two there? turn lanes, wow. yeah. How is it currently? Like, are we even close to that or is this like a 200% increase here? So I think it's a single left turn today. Mm -hmm. um, like and size. Yeah, and uh, I... I can't, I don't remember how far south it goes. The aerial in the background is not help, doing me any favors. Um, but I think it's somewhere right around here, right at the bridge where it opens up and they switch. The left turn goes north and, the, and to the south of the bridge, the left turn goes south. So um, it, is, it is a major change from what's out there today. Again, uh, US 59 is expected to see some significant growth and traffic coming out of the city, but also going into the city. 
just out of curiosity, where do you get your data from in terms of growth projections that you would show so many new cars coming from south of the city? Like, is Ottawa expected to go through a boom period, or is this more of a Panasonic thing? This is pre-Panasonic. So uh, <laughs> um, the MPOs is where we get our growth models, um, metropolitan planning organizations in yeah. Douglas County. And so that's where we get our growth models from and predicted growth rates. Interesting. Um, so I don't know if you're privy to this. I think we brought it up earlier. But the comprehensive plan for Lawrence after 2040 shows this as a Tier 3 growth area. Um, so there really isn't supposed to be much of anything going on here for the next 20 or so years. Um, so it sounds like it must come from, I mean, we're, it's already pretty far south in the county, so I can't imagine what else would be grown down there. I don't know. It just seems a little bit unusual that that's where the growth would be coming from, not the city itself, you know. But what do I know? All right. Any other questions for this interchange? I would just like to go on the record as saying is I highly support a grade-separated intersection there. So just to... Make that make that You're clear. Right here. That one, yeah. Yeah, this one right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, at at uh, right. Cool. Um, if there's no other questions from up here, we can go to public comment for this last one. Everybody good? Yeah. Okay. Any public comment for the final interchange design? Do we, there is public comment that was attached to the agenda. Do we need to address that? Uh, usually we don't address okay. public comment. We're just you know, supposed okay. to read it, essentially. Okay. Do you know what it was about? I, I didn't it was from Sustainability Action Network. About, it was actually about Clinton Parkway. Okay. Do you want to paraphrase that real quick? Just to, because I've mm. not gone, far, gone down that far. Yeah, I think it's at the end of, let's see. I mean, I think it was basically asking for this conversation to happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. Oh, okay. That sounds good. Well, in that case, um, I think that's it, right? So, thank you very much for your time and for entertaining <clears throat> our questions. Yeah, thank you. And we will stay in contact. Our point of contact will be Jake and or Dave uh, to get back with you or whatever. Right. Uh, you go through them, we'll go through them. And yep. Yeah. Yeah, we certainly are, are excited to see what kind of evolves here. So yeah, thanks for keeping us in the loop. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Do we want a quick break? It's been about an hour and a half. Anybody want a quick water break or anything? Or shall we go right on through to Lawrence Loop Projects? Yeah. All right. Power we'll power through. So that brings us to agenda item number two, receive update on Lawrence Loop projects. There you have it. Uh, good evening, everybody. Jake Baldwin, Engineering Program Manager with MSO. Uh, give us an update on all our Lawrence Loop projects, and it's kind of a, an exciting um, update because we've got all our missing segments programmed in the uh, five-year capital improvement plan. So um, that uh, kind of speaks to the progress I think we've been making. And I'll see if I can't uh, share screens here just to talk with the, the map we've got. And, and again, speaking to that capital improvement plan, I think I, I added up all the funds there, and we've got close to $10 million really um, allocated for these Lawrence Loop projects um, to 
kind of describe the scope of the work we're doing. And then um, jumping right in here to the map, I'll just go through these in numerical order here and give you guys a, a, a quick update. So number one, our Peterson um, Park to Michigan segment. Um, I don't know if you've been out there, but we're really close to opening um, that, that entire project up. Uh, we'll be working with uh, Parks and Rec, who we spoke to earlier um, on, a, on a, a ceremony to do a ribbon cutting there, so to celebrate that project. Um, then we move to the, the Purple Project, Michigan to Sandra Shaw Park. Um, we're currently, um, we've got, getting really close to final plans, working on property acquisition for that project, um, slated for construction in, in 2023. That's what I, in parentheses, that's what I'm alluding to, the years when we, we anticipate construction happening. Um, number three, we got a jump one, and that's our, our um, 8th Street, Santa Fe Depot to, to 8th Street um, in 2023. They're behind the Quonset Hut, making that, that short connection um, between um, existing segments there. Um, again, we've got um, funding budgeted for construction next year for that project. Number four is going to be our, our 7th the Constant Park, or Caw River project um, as kind of a collaboration with uh, some community advocates that we, we spoke to earlier. And uh, next steps on that are really kind of some planning and preliminary design next year. Um, right now we're looking at uh, potential uh, construction 2025 contingent upon um, finding some grant funding to go with that project. But uh, the capital improvement plan does kind of have the city's cost share budgeted in anticipation of that. So we're, we're kind of set up to succeed in the event of that happening. Um, and I guess I kind of skipped over um, our two red projects that were completed in 2021, uh, the 29th Street segment and the, the segment behind Hobbs Park from 11th Street North to 9th Street. Um, we go across the map, number five um, is the Queens Road to Castle there in blue. Um, we've, that's probably our farthest out um, segment there in 2027. We've got a lot of, uh, I think, right of way probably to acquire there and some planning as well before we get to construction. Um, probably be, it'll be a partnership with KTA there based on some of the alignment next to the turnpike as well. And um, lastly, number six, Iowa Street Crossing 2024 anticipated. Uh, we stole a little bit of the thunder from that one with the discussion we just had. Uh, but as you can tell, we, we've met with KDOT Transportation Planning, Matt Messina and Jenny Kramer, who, who spoke to the commission within the last year, year and a half. Um, but we're, again, we're working on a, a partnership for funding um, with a cost share for that project and, and tying it in into the South Lawrence Trafficway Highway expansion. And I think that's really all I had prepared tonight. Other than that, I'm just happy to take any questions uh, the commission has on, on project updates or. Any questions from the commission? Just what was the, what time is the uh, ribbon cutting scheduled for? What's the completion expected on that? So we're expecting the project to be complete this month. It is October now, yeah, this month. Um, ribbon cut cutting is kind of in Parks and Rec's hands. Um, yeah. Roger, who you spoke to, I think, Roger Steinbrock is gonna kind of take the lead on that from what I understand. Right. Um, they have a little more experience in that sort of thing than yeah, we do. Yeah, my question was really the completion of the project and I kind of missed that when you, when you said that, but yeah, yeah, great. That's really exciting. I'd just like to comment that as I go through these historical things that all happened right before I showed up in town, 
it looks like you had a lot of public outreach to decide what kind of path is the best, which route do you want to take. Generally, it seems like the ones that people voted for are the ones that have happened, which is cool. So, you know, it's just, I mean, it's not saying that nobody listens to citizens or anything, but it's nice to show, like, yeah, this is exactly what you wanted, and this is what we built. So, Although I do notice that for the one going through downtown, that a lot of people did vote for the one that goes through the building, <laughs> which is a pretty wild path. But I think with the riverfront and center idea, something like that may eventually happen anyway. So, um could you comment a little bit more on, I guess, what the plan is for Riverfront and Center? Because I remember seeing in the CIP that there was an alternate bike path that was going to be from, I want to say, Santa Fe, Santa Fe Station to Constant Park, but like through downtown. What's the other option? Well, essentially, I think when the, the draft CIP was out there, we had the same project in there twice from different perspectives. And then right. here, when the the last iteration of the CIP came together. We, we brought those two together in collaboration with that citizen advocacy group. Um, so really, the, the alignment isn't set, so to speak. I think there's got to be some public engagement and planning uh, that goes into that before any alignment is set. So that's really the next step, I'd say, in 2023, is okay. to bring a consultant on board. Dave? Yeah, I said I would just add that um, we would anticipate it taking that route. If you're looking at the Lawrence Loop study, um, I've got it pulled up on my computer, but it's at the F1 route. And then it says through the building, well, that's not really feasible. But we, we anticipate it continuing kind of similar to the alignment that Riverfront Center has shown. Like around the um, promenade on the outside? Correct. Okay. So, but, you know, like Jake mentioned, we would have with this next phase uh, next year, have some community engagement on defining the route we're gonna um, also need to engage the railroad um, on the crossing um, um, at uh, I think 7th in New Jersey or just north of 7th in New Jersey um, and also have conversations um, about you know tying back into the unmistakable identity conversation at the study session ways to incorporate art and culture into into the project because uh, it's gonna be very visual uh, project that will be, um, you know, um, that will have a lot of opportunity um, for aesthetic and art improvements in it. So I think that that will need to go through um, its own kind of phase of engagement. And so, that, you know, I think really that those things are what we're going to focus on with that next section um, that Jake was showing on the map. Uh, I think he had 2025 on there for construction. Um, uh, optimistically, we're trying to get through some of this conceptual design work, um, community engagement next year so that we could apply for a, a raise grant or another grant early in 2024. Um, usually those take three to six months, so maybe by fall of 2024 we could maybe secure a grant and then, and then construct it in 2025. So um, that's kind of the way we see it developing. Um, obviously, there's... Uh, a lot of details that uh, we'll need to iron out as we get into into looking at, looking at it further. But it was kind of the preferred alignment from the study before it veered through the building, and that's because we just didn't think uh, about going out into the river. <laughs> but yeah, we we've exhausted the other options, um, and I think you know I think we're on board with. Trying to trying to proceed with this um, uh, with the new alignment. So, since the other options are exhausted, if a raise grant isn't possible, like if you apply, say two years in a row, and they're like, "No, nah, we're not going to give you money for that," 
Um, is there still a chance to fully fund it through the city, or would it then be probably pared back scope? Is there a fallback plan at this point, or are we pretty confident that the grant will probably be coming our way? Well, I, yeah, I, I would say the fallback plan would be to try to budget it through the CIP process, see how it ranks and scores with competing projects. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sounds reasonable. Um, so is the consultant going to be hired then to do the conceptual design and the community engagement, or...? Okay. Yeah, we would anticipate having, I mean, there could be sub-consultants in involved, but yeah, having having a lead and, and going through it all as one process. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Cool. That's exciting to see this thing really kicking off. Any other questions, comments? If not, uh, we'll move to get public comment open. Is there anybody in the room or on the phone who would like to make a comment for this? Thank you, Jake. Doesn't sound like it. Okay. In that case, we are moving on to um, staff items. Dave, did you have some updates for us? Looks like. I do. So, um, first off, um, Commissioner Redding's position's uh, now vacant. So. Um, based off his um, un inability to make some of the meetings, he's um, resigned his position. So that is that is vacant. I know that was a question that um, has come up. Um, <clears throat> shared scooter update. Um, I heard back from KU, um, and they have uh, made contact with the KU student body president and started talking about scooters, and I think um, those conversations are continuing, um, and I think it's uh, something that I uh, will keep checking back in with them on um, to find uh, if they have the ability to kind of help take the lead on some of the uh, engagement that needs to go on for that and, and <coughs> um, developing procedures and um, just getting that conversation going again. So I think it's... Um, something that we could focus on going into 2023 at this point. Um, but uh, they did meet with them. I don't think originally it was um, something that was on th their uh, um, platform or one of the top items, but I think the conversations are continuing. And so um, we'll continue to have those discussions with KU and look for opportunities on that moving forward. Sounds good. Um, Jake, you want to take the next one? Sure. Yeah, the commission um, asked us to get some volume um, and speed data on the race crossing at 29th Street and has sorry on Haskell Lane, just south of 29th Street, that we constructed in 21 with part of that loop project. Um, and so the the data gathered um, shows that the the cut through traffic and I'll. I'll I think on southbound, the southbound movement, which is I think the more concerning movement, was only reduced by 9% from really the, the before to after the crossing. Um, so uh, the, you know, the, the impact of that crossing on cut through traffic, I, I think you could say was minimal. Um, and then moving down to um, the speed data, 
Um, we got that collected here just recently, and you can see that the, the 85th percentile speed was, was 19 miles an hour going southbound. The average was 15, and then um, northbound um, average speed was 8 miles an hour, and the 85th percentile was 10 miles per hour. And I made a note there that <coughs> with, with that northbound speed, you know, we we collected data just after the stop sign, so it, it doesn't re kind of reflect. Um, it, it's not saying that people are speeding through that stop sign or not making the stop. It's showing the acceleration after the stop sign. Okay. Any comments, questions from the questions on this? So is it my understanding this correctly that the traffic in that area has just decreased overall? Whether it's taking the intersection at 31st or cutting through, looks like the volume. Of yeah, our volumes indicate traffic has decreased. I mean, the, I think we took all the, the counts between five and five and six to, to on a. I don't know if we, you know, obviously on the probably the same day, but uh, yeah. The one thing I would say is we, the, the counts we got were in June during the summer, so sometimes our volumes are a little less in the summer. Um, but um, as far as the percent cutting through, it's no, no real, no real change, and we didn't really expect to see a big change. Um, well, we didn't have speed data before. We did not. Okay. No. Twenty pedestrians and bicyclists crossing in that hour. Does that strike you as what you expected, or did that seem to be a lot? I don't know. I, I was out. There, I was actually out there counting them at 31st and uh, Haskell, and some of them were the same person crossing twice. Yeah. Um, but I don't. I, you know, at five o'clock, five to six, uh, from my personal experience, crossing there, um, I've seen people, but it's not a a large large number, and it's only an hour. So, um, it was a nice day, sunny day, and. Uh, um, so I don't know. I don't think we have any other historical counts there for uh, pedestrians and bicyclists crossing. But since we we're there, we took the count. And that's so. I just wanted to report it. Well, I appreciate getting that data. I think it helps us understand, you know, better what the context is. That it doesn't sound like it cut the number of cars that are trying to, you know, avoid that 31st Street intersection. But it's they're not going very fast, so they're making a crossing, you know, that might disrupt 20 people that are trying to cross on foot or on bike. Um, it helps me to better understand, like, how that crossing patterns look over there without having to physically be there like you guys did. So I appreciate you taking the time to do that and provide that information to us. Um, I would wonder like how others feel about that. I mean, our original goal was to try to get people to not take this path <laughs> that are you know driving and um, the few times I've been over there I, I, I kind of suspect that we probably didn't achieve that goal. Um, but the real goal was to make sure it's a safe place for people to, to walk or bike across. So I'm curious how others think about that like I run through there on a regular basis. I've never had any problems with traffic. It's people are going slow enough, and there's usually not just a ton of traffic either. So it's 
as a runner, it feels safe to cross, at least when I'm out there. Anyone else trying to ever bike out there? Or? I, I do bike out there a lot, but mm-hmm. not across that exact street. Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm in the area. I just don't cross that exact street. I'm trying to remember. The Lawrence Loop goes up Haskell itself, right? It goes up Haskell Avenue? No, it crosses... It goes. Mm-hmm. Oh no! It, it crosses here and goes south. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Okay, because it seems like the crossing going across 29th Street that appears to be maybe the more hazardous one, because cars are coming from the north. They're taking a right turn with a pretty long sweeper there, because it's meant for commercial trucks. I mean, that's what is supposed to use this area. So it makes sense that that's such a long radius. But I would say that crossing is maybe a little bit more problematic. But I don't know. I don't regularly walk there, so. And that wasn't the subject of this studying in the first place, so anyway. Yeah, my experience with biking is that, you know, for someone on um, Haskell on their on their bikes and they're making that turn left, and you you really basically need to get off your bike, you know, because you can't you can't see the cars that way and the cars that are making the right-hand turn, you know. So people just need to be aware um, because they're coming around that curve off from, off from Haskell to make the, the turn onto um, uh, Haskell Lane um, and not going very fast, but you can't, you can't see and you don't... Basically, I don't trust them to stop. <laughs> so you have to get off your bike and and uh, and, that, and then and navigate across. So that's kind of the issue. So I think one of the original topics of discussion that we had around this was if it's not diverting traffic, do we need to, you know, go back to the original plan, which was installing a diverter of some sort? Because that's what you guys had originally brought to us back in the day when we were long ago discussing what this is going to look like. Um, I mean, would installing something like those collapsible yellow barriers be a reasonable option? I have no idea how much that costs or how difficult it is or if there's any room in the budget, but I mean, is that something that could be done? To close access to one way or the other? I should probably clarify. I don't think it needs to be completely closed. I think if you were to do those yellow barriers from the southbound crosswalk, going west to about the midpoint of Haskell Lane. So if you're in a car, you can still just go slowly around there and get mm-hmm. south down Haskell Lane, but you can't cut the chicane, right? You can't, can't aim for the apex exactly. So, I mean, it would be 25 of those things, I guess, for about what is that, 30 feet. I don't know if I'm getting the scale right, but it wouldn't be particularly far. And even with just those yellow things, I don't know. Is, is that the kind of quick fix that could be done? I don't claim to know the inner workings of how public works, get, you know, those small projects. So, yeah, I, I think to put like median divert delineators in the median, I think it, yeah, it could be done. I think the the concern would be just the maintenance of them with truck turning movements because they don't take many over tracking trucks for them to pop off. So that was something we kind of talked about a little bit. Um, you think there's going to be a lot give, of large trucks going down, down Haskell Lane from Haskell Avenue, or is it mostly passenger vehicles that are cutting through? Because I, I know there's a whole lot of commercial stuff to the, the west at <coughs> like a truck sales shop, but they wouldn't be necessarily at risk for running those over unless they're not in their lane, which is a different problem. 
Yeah. I, I would add there is the, the trailer manufacturing company to the south there. Their entrance is south of 29th, I believe. Oh, Eagle Trailer. Right. So they can still get up from East 31st Street. I mean, if, if, if they had to. I mean, especially if you're coming from the highway anyway, it, that, that, that's still a single entrance out. And, and if you need to leave from there, you, you can still take Haskell Lane North and go where, I, I don't know. It, it doesn't seem like it's exactly making their spot a dead end, but I'm not a truck driver, so. Hmm. <laughs> I, I used to be back when I drove a huge truck for Just Food, but those days are behind me. <laughs> All right, well, um, I guess there's not really much we can do at this point. Just was kind of curious if that's a possibility. So, all right. Well, I think having these numbers, you know, both speed and traffic count, that, that gives us information going forward so that, you know, if we see, you know, continued problems and, and have traffic counts again sometime in the future when it's needed, that at least gives us that background. So I really appreciate you you know, pulling that information together. I'd be interested to see what it looks like after the 23rd Street construction's done, mm. mm -hmm. as people are avoiding 23rd and Haskell right, right, right. now, <laughs> and Haskell in general. Yeah, that's true. Maybe there, we can revisit it. <clears throat> that uh, crossing does not, or does or does it not have the RRFBs? No, it's just, no. just bare. Would... <clears throat> I'm just wondering if that would help at all with people that are trying to cross. I think it would help a lot more to divert traffic. And that would be a lot cheaper, too. Hmm. So, I don't know. I, I mean, on one hand, yeah, it's technically fine the way it is, but it's one of those things where with that south to north crosswalk across 29th Street, I feel like that's kind of an accident waiting to happen as well. And that is only a problem because it's so easy to cut through to Haskell Lane. And it's like, do we, I want to push this off to next year and raise the issue again? Or do we wait till somebody get, gets hit here? Because Haskell Avenue does tend to have collisions. So I just, I don't know if I want to. Yeah, and the north, that, you know? northbound on Haskell Lane has a stop sign. But from the other direction, they, they do not. So they're, yeah. they're making that S curve. And uh, Like on Google Maps, you can even see there is a grayer section where, mm -hmm. where you know, they're taking the best racing line. Right. So, I don't know. My position is that I think it would be something worth pursuing, but if the rest of the commission is in, in line, I'm okay. To, this isn't a hill I need to die on, so. Well, I, I do think those kind of barriers would make a difference in that, in the behavior, but if you can't keep them there because of trucks, then it kind of defeats the, defeats the purpose, but. I mean, I'm seeing here with this darker gray line where you see the cars have obviously taken that turn a lot. You could put the the markers right up to the edge of where the yellow center line intersects with the dark gray shadow line, and people could still take that turn. I mean, trucks could probably still take that. That's the pretty wide radius at that intersection if you stop short of, you know. Um, it would just be enough of at least of, of a visual distraction. Either. Even to be like, whoa, something's kind of different here. I guess I don't want to hit the cones, you know. So I am kind of curious. Like that is a pretty big. So I, I'm working on getting my CDL license right now, <laughs> and I'm driving around this 40-foot rig for the health department, 
and I'm getting more familiar with, you know, like the decisions we make and how it does impact people that are driving, um, in this case, a straight truck. But that does seem like a pretty wide turn. And someone could make that intersection. I mean, they already make a turn uh, on the east side that seems like a tighter turn than what's here on the um, northwest side. Yeah, if, if I think I can add to the conversation, I think that um, is, is probably a, a solution we could probably explore at least temporarily and, and get some more data on. Um, but we would definitely want to talk to those businesses again, like we did with the first conversation. And, and you know, I, I think we could probably get their buy-in on this as long as we're not restricting um, traffic. But of course, that's you know, we, we don't know that their other concerns might be. Yeah, I think that would be interesting because what could be in it for them is that if you reduce cut through traffic, then that's more room for the huge trucks to move around without having to worry about the commuters too. So, I mean, if, if trucks can go slowly enough to still make the turn from both sides, but cars can't take it kind of at speed and are maybe induced to go the other way, that could be of interest. Um, and I think specifically, I think we've got some of the applications we're using in the, the um, East Old West Lawrence neighborhood, uh, the rubber curbs. And I think, what are they like 18 inches, 16 inch tall bollards? Mm-hmm. That sound about right. I think that's probably the application we would consider putting out there and testing out. I honestly wasn't even thinking the rubber curbs. I just thought just the stanchions on the streets good enough. But if we want to go to the next level, sure, why not? Um, it's probably easier to bolt them to that and then bolt the rubber to the street. I guess so. I don't know. It's something we have handy as well, yeah, so it's, it makes it a quicker study. <laughs> sure. I mean, so I would. I, for one, would love to see if that's possible. Do you guys understand what I'm saying of, of the geometry of where to put it? Am I making sense? It's kind of hard because I'm, I'm looking at a screen, but, you know. Um, yeah, so we, yeah, I think we understand. Get it. Like, you can pretty clearly yeah. see the gray line on Google Maps. So, Okay. Is <clears throat> getting to the, the north-south crossing, is, is that crosswalk that's marked there, does it need to be, I mean, could it be in any way moved? Um, further to the west to make it a shorter crossing? I mean, it would be probably a different alignment on the sidewalk. But. Yeah, I think the, the considerations would be um, really sight distance, so being able to see pedestrians crossing. Um, yeah, the, sh- the crossing would be shorter, so it would have to, we'd have to look at moving the ramps to do that. Um, and and just the concern on just being able to see the pedestrian because it's really you want to have the crossings close to the intersection now that's not an ideal length of crossing you can see how long it is with the with the radius there um so you know i don't i guess i don't know if i would recommend moving it i mean it's at the point where it's you know visually if you're on haskell avenue um, you should have good sight distance of the pedestrians. Um, so I guess what do we need to do to push this possible test forward? Um, do we need a vote from our side or did uh, well, enough? We, yeah. Okay. We don't need to vote. We'll t- take a run at trying something temporarily and okay. Great. I would definitely appreciate that. Um, I mean, even just temporary, just to, just to see if it actually does anything, right? I have no idea. Like a light enough touch to not divert everything, but a heavy enough touch to deter people who are so used yeah. to it, you know? Just so. geometrically slowing down the vehicles, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I think is the main, yeah. Okay, well, cool. Um, do we have any other comment on that? 
I think that was a pretty productive discussion, actually. Yeah. Did not expect that. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't, no, no, I just thought it was going to be like, well, there it is. Cool. Um, oh. There you go. <laughs> All right, um, Old West Lawrence traffic calming pilot. It. Um, first of all, just a shout out for um, offering to include me in the discussions. Apologies, I haven't actually made it yet. I've always been busy exactly at this times, but I'm very glad to see that discussions are still going. So this is an exciting topic. Yeah, so we've uh, continued uh, working with the neighborhood since we had a regular agenda item at last month's meeting here and uh, with the goal of implementing a third pilot study based on the neighborhood traffic safety team recommended plan and then using the temporary materials that we have available. Um, so we've coalesced around a plan and then I've kind of outlined the timeline here. Uh, you may notice we put out our city press release this afternoon uh, announcing the, the third um, pilot study. And then moving forward, we'll be uh, doing the install next week uh, after our big uh, home football game this weekend. <laughs> I do recall a lot of the complaints early on where like, did you have to do it during the game? But now that people are actually going to the games, it might have to. Yeah. Yeah. And again, anticipating a big crowd this weekend, but then having, I, I think, two or three weekends without a home game to kind of let traffic normalize again. <laughs> and then that leaves us a, a window of three weeks starting October 24th for data collection at 24 locations, which would correlate to the original before data collection locations, so we can compare before to this third trial with the data. And then mid-November through the end of November, we'll have time to dig into the data and, and draw some conclusions and with the goal of bringing a recommendation back to the December meeting of MMTC. Okay. Sounds good. I just want to say I appreciate you guys taking the time to work with the neighborhood. I think, you know, it's probably definitely not been what you imagined, but um, it's it's important work. And so I just want to acknowledge that you've been patient and listening to them is really critical. So thank you. My hope is that it'll pay dividends by by investing extra time and money now. Hopefully, the next time we do one of these, we'll be able to avoid a lot of acrimony up front by, you know, kind of having that, that roadmap for how to engage with the neighborhood, already knowing ahead of time which things work, which ones are particularly controversial. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of knew it was going to be a bit of a study the first time. That's why it's a pilot, right? So mm -hmm. hopefully pilots from here on out will be a little bit smoother because there's been a lot of lessons learned. So, yeah, it seems pretty worthwhile. Any other questions on the yeah, Owl Traffic Pilot? Okay. Any other staff items or that it? Okay. Let's go to commission items. Start with the T2050 Steering Committee update. That is, um, I wasn't able to attend, but uh, yeah, so I was able to. I attended, um, we were presented uh, and reviewed their public engagement and what we heard sections and also the existing conditions. Um, yeah, you can get that agenda packet on, on the calendar if you're interested. And then the topics for the next meeting are travel demand model, uh, draft goals, strategies, and actions. Um, so I think we meet 
two or three more times before they try to wrap that up. Um, March 2023. Okay. Sounds good. Um, so that travel demand model, I think that gets straight into what, how KDOT, um, that's the data that they use then to do their planning. Mm -hmm. So going, kind of connecting to our previous discussion and you were asking about where they get their data <laughs> comes from yeah. this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so they're going to have someone, I forget who uh, the consultant was, but someone present to kind of explain mm -hmm. how they get the data, what exactly they use. Yeah, so a lot, some of it's based off land use and some projections, and then and then there's uh, uh, some factors for uh, traffic increase up to the horizon year, which would be 2050 now. <clears throat> so okay, let's move on to climate action plan steering committee update, which is also you. Yeah, so we've kicked off. Um, Um, so yeah, we basically had a kickoff meeting with the uh, steering committee and just did introductions, um, looked at um, existing MART um, climate action plan. We're kind of regionally a part of a climate action plan already, so we're going to be heavily referencing that and trying to lean on. You know, there's a lot of goals that we're already a part of that have been set, we're kind of hoping to focus more on implementation of uh, you know, starting to make things happen. Um, so that was really exciting. Um, I think we're a monthly for that. What would implementation of some of those goals look like? Like, have any examples? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> Still early. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll be interesting to see that one develop. Who else is on the steering uh, committee, by the way? I don't, there's no link here, so. Oh, um, I'm terrible with names, so I'd have to pull, pull up. <laughs> Sounds pretty big. Who is represented? Like, is it a lot of city departments, county stuff, regional? It's like 30 people or something. It's that huge. is pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, so there's folks from... Maybe not quite 30. Health department. Um, Yeah, it was a long list. Like okay. a steering committee, yeah. right? So if, if I'm thinking of somebody who might be involved, they probably are involved, right? KU, Sustainability Action Board. Yeah. Okay. So we go on to, well, the I, very, or did you find something? No, no, no. I, I'm just waiting for my moment here on commission items. Oh, okay. I'll just do it. Go ahead. Do number three. This one's pretty quick. So the Land Development Code Steering Committee update. I guess it's more like the Land Development Code Update Steering Committee. So um, I am the representative for MMTC. There's a whole bunch of other people representing various interests. We finally had our first meeting, geez, probably a month ago now. Um, I thought it was pretty productive for the most part. It seems like there's a decent amount of alignment and kind of interest in moving things forward a little bit. One of the notes I took is that, you know, as we all went around the room and kind of said, you know, what do we like what's going on? What do we wish could change? How do we think we can get there? There was a decent amount of alignment on the connection between ladies and transportation, which is good, um, and some additional support for making it easier and safer for everybody to get around Lawrence. That was kind of the thing I brought up is like, as the transportation 
representative, you know, there's a lot of things I'm interested in, but specifically I want to make sure that we make it easier for people to transport themselves around regardless of their, their means or their ability, right? So seem to be a lot of support for that, which I think will be good to, you know, I guess continue to push that connection between land use and transportation because it it's important. That's it for me. What do you got, Charlie? Commissioner Ryan. All right. Um, I <clears throat> was curious if we could find out a little bit more about the lights in underpasses um, on the Lawrence Loop Trail, specifically the Bob Billings Parkway, um, 6th Street uh, underpasses, and then I don't know about McDonald Drive since that's going to be a new one. Um, a former MMTC member, um, Catherine Schartz, uh, had recently talked to me about this and said that there, there's a need for lights in those ones out on the west side of town. So I, I'm not familiar with it enough to give her an answer. I just thought I'd bring it to you guys. I think she's been working out or reaching out to Parks and Rec, but um, it does seem important if people are riding in the evening that yeah, I, lighting there and don't know what we can do about it, but it seemed worth yeah. cons consideration. Yeah, I believe those ones out on the west side of town don't have lights. No. The, the one going underneath McDonald is lit. Um, it, it'll be on a photo cell, and it's got four of them actually have battery backup, so if power goes out, we'll have four of the lights. I think there's like 16 four-foot LEDs underneath that tunnel. Um, half of them will be on during the day um, because it's a 160-foot tunnel. And it's, it's, it's fairly, it's, it's not bad when you're in there, but kind of the transition from daylight into the tunnel really kind of spoke to me about that need for them during the day. So uh, that has been accounted for. Yeah, and we, we included lights in the tunnels at 19th and Iowa. Those are the first times we, first time we used them. And those are them. great. I've yeah, the, the other, you know, is it, did, I, I don't know if it just wasn't thought of back back then, but not that not. not that those are any shorter, longer, or less need, but that's something that we hadn't heard any public feedback from those, or I hadn't, but um, that's something that we could think about going forward if there's a way to do that. It's just a matter of where's the closest uh, power source and then putting a pole transformer and running the lights. So that's something that could be thought about as a future amenity in, in I mean, either or both of those. Sounds like we're thinking that way now. Um, so maybe just thinking that how do we retrofit, you know, those other tunnels so that they feel safe, you know, secure for people that are out there. Um, I think that'd be important to figure out how to how to get that done um, sooner rather than later, I guess. So I don't know how that fits into the budget, but uh, I just wanted to bring it up. Um, we also had some discussion that, that during the last meeting about the 23rd Street and Naismith. Um, projects that are coming out and I was wondering when will we when is that going to be something that we'll see on our agenda at some point um, the intersection there's the project MS 230074 23rd and Naismith geometric improvements is that something that we would expect to come to us at some point or could we learn more about it um, 
Yeah, that project I don't think was f was funded. It was submitted. Okay. But I don't think it was funded for a westbound no a westbound right turn lane. Um, the section um, to the north uh, between 19th and 23rd is in the CIP for design next year and construction in 24, I believe. Yeah, it looks like there was a budget item for like three different years. Yeah. Um, so the intent of um, the discussion next month to look at 2023 projects would be to run through and just say, hey, these are the upcoming projects and um, maybe kind of briefly go through all of the project detail sheets for each one of them, similar to what we did last year about, about this time. Um, and so that's the intention at the November meeting. Um, so that one would be designed then next year? In 23, I think, okay. yeah, Naismith, um, north of 23rd Street, was designed in 23, construction 24. Yes. I believe. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I just was talking, bef I don't know when it was, in the middle of our meeting after, maybe between the study session. Um, maybe sometime last year we had a presentation about school uh, crossing guards and it occurred to me that when we were in our study session and I put out the idea about having um, walking school buses as I understood Columbia Missouri's approach to that is they f they funded uh, coordinators at every school and then they they were the ones that got the volunteers trained them and then um, ran that program and in my mind the money that we were spending on crossing guards um, I think it was over a hundred thousand dollars like hundred and twenty thousand a year or something if I got it totally wrong please correct me but it was a significant amount of money and some of the changes that were being made to crossings uh, or the use of crossing guards would actually um, save some money. And I was wondering if there was some way to think differently about the budget for crossing guard safety, to think about it more expansively around how do kids safely get to school and crossing streets is one aspect, but also having supervision as they walk to school um, would be another aspect and if you know Columbia can pull that off for a thousand dollars at each school to pay for a part-time coordinator like could that be something that we consider and maybe think differently about school crossing guards as a program in a budget item you know maybe it's safer routes to school programming and that includes some elements including crossing guards uh, safer out to school coordinators at every school. I don't know what else you'd come up with, but it, it would be nice to see funding that's available for programmatic work around getting kids safely to schools. And I, I can imagine that going further if we had a study session on it, like, you know, transit um, is going to be providing fare-free transit here soon. And um, I know there's work being done to help teach people how to use transit so maybe some of that kind of a programmatic budget could be about helping kids learn how to use the bus um, there's always the walk to school 
day and the bike to school days. So there's possibly a need for funding to help support those efforts. And you know, Jessica in the study session mentioned something around there's always been kind of a, a lack of a champion for, I forgot exactly what it was, but it was like, there's always this need to find like, where's, where's the home of this, um, who does the work around changing our culture? I guess is what she was alluding to. But I don't know where it would fit. That always seems to be the problem, is there's not a staff you can say, all right, this is yours. And if crossing guards are under the police department, I don't know how to say, well, you should also think about this, you know, because uh, that might not fit under their space of what they think the police department does. Unless you said, well, SROs, you know, the school resource officers should think about crossing safety and kids getting to school safely through uh, walking school buses. I don't know. I'm thinking a little out of the box here, but my thought was mostly about the funding that was allocated in the past, if that money is available at all. Um, could we think beyond just using it to pay for crossing guards? And I'm not sure I'm looking for any answer to that, except maybe what's the historical amount been, and if that has, has dropped, um, it'd be helpful to know that. If you know, if it used to be 120 and now it's only 60, then I know that money's going somewhere else. But maybe maybe it's not too late for us to ask for some other consideration for how that money gets repurposed. So I guess my question would be, what's the history of that fund or that amount of the budget, and then what is it now? And yeah, I think who who, who is it that has the Authority over deciding uh, on it's around a hundred thousand dollars. It we dropped a couple crossing guards when we redid the policy, mm -hmm. and I think going into this year, was it one less or one more? Uh, we added one this we year, we added one this year, okay. which is a, a three or four thousand a crossing guard, yeah, yeah, park, yeah. Um, so ultimately, I think that'd be a discussion on the policy. Mm -hmm. We and and you know, when we updated the Safe Rest of School plan. There was a number of different recommendations. I think walking school bus may have been in the long list and like who's oh. the champion of it. Some of, the, some of the champions was for the school district to help mm -hmm. or the school maybe to identify someone to do that. And so um, like Jessica said, who, who, where does it land? I, I don't know if I have the answer if it's city <laughs> To have you know to coordinate for every school and every school you know at well, is that, the crossing guard stuff is that a, is that actually a budget line or is that just it, internal? It's, budget, it's a budgeted line. It's under parking and tra parking and transit parking hmm. parking staff manages the personnel. So that's not part of the police department. It is not no. Okay, so that goes under Adam. It's under Brad Harrell. And parking, he's, parking, which is he's parking doesn't report to, isn't he transit and parking? Yeah, manager? I. Okay. Matrix. I think he part. I think he reports to Adam. Okay. From what I understand, the, the budget was not the problem for the crossing guards. It was more like it was really hard to get people to actually <clears throat> show up or take the job. Right. Yeah, so that like, was right. part of it. There's we didn't. We didn't. The, they didn't change. We didn't change the number because of the cost. Right. right? It exactly. was just based off the criteria. So yeah. if there was another program or some additional way to fund 
right. coordinators. I don't know what they do in Columbia, so but that would be something. My thought was we had, you know, we used to take this approach to traffic calming that was really narrow about each particular street, and then we changed to this neighborhood traffic model, and or traffic management model. And so we shifted to more of a programmatic way of thinking about um, traffic in neighborhoods. And I'm wondering if this is another opportunity to go a little bigger than just thinking about crossing guards. Because that's one of the pieces of helping kids get to school safely. And how, how else could we support, especially if the plan even calls for that kind of intervention, then you know, it probably takes funding. So then where does the funding come from? Probably the schools would be the best to identify like the, who would be hired to do the work. So they'd probably work in the school or whatever. I know years ago the PE teachers were given stipends to do the on-bike education, and it helped to get them to you know, support that curriculum change. I don't know. I'm just really thinking out of the box. I mean, maybe it's a PTO issue. But if there's a way to provide funding from the city that's you know, one piece of that puzzle, who hires and supervises the staff would be a separate issue altogether, I think. But Should we then direct staff to get a quantitative estimate of what the money is available? And if there is enough available, then we could take it to the next step and maybe pen a letter from MMTC to USD 497 and say, hey, here's something that we think is interesting that we'd like you to be involved in. There is some money available because we know you guys are strapped. So, um, I guess I'd like to have it more open-ended than that. Like, if there's a plan that is needs funds to make it move forward how would how do we influence um the possibility that there would be funding set aside to help make progress on that plan and so if the safe routes plan already calls for the walking school buses i'd like to know like is there are there other things in that plan that would need funding and could we think more broadly about the funding that's going to the crossing guards so that it's really seen as the bucket that all safe routes programming funds come from. It sounds like this is an idea that could use some uh, further evolution, I guess, and Probably. back on research. Yeah, yeah I wouldn't want so, to jump too quickly, but it's yeah. just like, how do we stop, how do we see a little bit beyond just the crossing guard as the budget line mm -hmm. and say, okay, what's needed for the problem to be best addressed? And it might be bigger than just crossing guards. So I don't know if crossing guards is even in the safe routes plan. I would it imagine it would be. So yeah. maybe it's looking at the safe routes plan and asking that question, like what are the funding needs for it that would would maybe resemble a you know broader scope around crossing guards and et cetera. So we have a. Uh working safe house school working group that we meet once a month plan to meet once a month at least includes the mpo school district health department so we can bring it up with that group and see if there's any ideas i don't and maybe look at the columbia columbia missouri yeah and that was i mean i i what shared that but that was back when i was doing different work at the health department so i was a little more tuned into it i don't know yeah uh, it may just be something that Yes, we can we can bring it up and um, that's, you know I'd have to look back at the plan. I just know there was a full page of different 
recommendations from the education side, mm-hmm. crossing guards, and and who the um, champion of that was to be. And so we can look at that as well, maybe. But um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Any other commission items? If not, I had a kind of a silly one. I think it's quick, but um, I, I've been spending a lot more time around 29th and Haskell, and um, the there's a street down there, 30th Terrace, East 30th Terrace. I've back when I was new and particularly naive, I got uh, actually lost there trying to find the Lawrence Loop because I, I didn't know what I was doing. What is going on with that street? It, did there used to be something at the end of it? Was it planned for something that never happened? I'm just kind of curious why there's like a quarter mile long dead end into oh. the swamp. Well, that used to be 31st Street. So if you were to look at old areas, uh, old aerials, 31st Street continued uh, on that alignment to Louisiana and with the South Orange Traffic Way, it was relocated to be in the same corridor. So that okay. old, old 31st Street was restored to wetlands. <laughs> Except for that one final block. <laughs> yeah, and that was, that was I think, um, I don't have it in front of me, just to serve access to that lot. Are there any plans for it, or just kind of let it be reclaimed by the earth eventually? Just out of curiosity, I have <laughs> no idea. Really, everything's reclaimed eventually. Right? Eventually? <laughs> oh, everything's, yeah, I there's no plans that I'm, aware, that I'm aware of. If development were to occur and... Um, lots could be split or combined. Maybe it gets modified or goes away. I don't. You know, I think it was just basically the remnant was left for access to that. But as, as I recall, um, and the rest of it wasn't needed, so it was removed. So other than that, that's that's the history. Right. I don't think about it too much. But uh, if you <laughs> if you were if you were to turn down there, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's like wh- why is it like this? Well, it makes so much more sense when you look at the map. Where, yeah, yeah. When you're there, like you can't see or the read, so like why does this yeah. even exist? But it's very clearly uh, a right away. Right. Yeah, I'm just saying a pretty cool place for like a mini golf course or something, right? Well, Nobody's using it, right? So, anyway, <laughs> all right. Well, now I know that's been a burning question. Yeah. Apparently, at one point. There was Pokemon at the end of the road doing that whole thing. You know, that's <laughs> legendary ones. So I know when that when that was going on, someone was asking me about the road, and but that's. I went down there recently, anyway. but it was a little too quiet. I didn't really want to spend a whole lot of time back there. <laughs> anyway, okay. Um, any other commission items, or <clears throat> we're all good. All right, let's go to the calendar then, real quick. Um, okay, so uh, next meeting scheduled for November seventh. For the study session, we penciled in uh, having discussion on community engagement, so we need to talk with staff here to confirm that first. Um, but we've got a new community engagement manager. Um, maybe see if we can uh, get her to attend that meeting, uh, Hannah Ballard. Um, and for the regular meeting, uh, we're talking about the five-year street maintenance plan. Um, and the 2023 plan in respects to bikeway improvements that we talk about annually. Um, uh, the 2023 CIP projects, which I mentioned earlier, and then um, hopefully have the draft of the crossing policy for review. Um, so we met with a consultant on that um, last week to get an update, and that's. Um, 
still making progress. So originally, we were hoping to bring it this month, but we're shooting for it for next month. Um, and that's what we got for November. Cool. Any questions? That's it. All right. Any other things we need to bring up before we adjourn? All right. In that case, we're adjourned. Thank you, everybody. So, that's a rumba.